Step right up, it's nailed. A halo by halo journey through the music of Nine Inch Nails. I'm Blake. I'm Jessica. And this is a season of podcast episodes about the fragile. Fragile summer continues. Mm-hmm. This fine August night. And what are we doing tonight, Jessica, is our topic. Tonight, it's another intro episode. I'm sure people... <laughs> intro to the intro. To the intro. <laughs> We'll call this a prelude. How about we call it prelude to Mm. the fragile? Does that sound nicer? Yeah, you have to remind me to name it that later. Prelude to Halo 14. That's right. And so I know we did an enter to the fragile era, but that was more just about um, personal things that maybe had affected Reznor and put him in a certain headspace that... Yeah, and I know what you mean. And it was... An intro to an era. Mm-hmm. This is an intro to an album. Yes. And specifically it's just this album. Big album. So. And if we included all the intros and wrap all into one intro, it would be like a five or six hour intro. So it's better to split it up. That's right. And I've been told by multiple people, you know, there's no such thing as going too long on the fragile. We love the long episodes. The longer, the better. I'm sure there's like five or 10 people out there who have, more than that who just turned the podcast off and like i'm never going to get into this um it's too damn long but we don't hear from them we hear only hear we're lucky enough we only hear from the people who seem to like that it gets ridiculously long sometimes yeah and the people who like to hear this fucking cat fucking (laughs) meow every goddamn second of the day and night sorry you tell that he's getting to me a little bit today oscar started off he had a rough morning this morning he kind of he had some Tummy issues. Up. <laughs> it's okay. He's doing better. Um, but we should, because this could possibly be a super long one, we should yeah. not delay. Yes. And we should get into our opening segment. Before even getting into the fragile, let's talk about some nine inch news. So everything is in the news today. <laughs> Will you kind of tell the listeners what the issue is here with um, Beyonce? And her similarities in a in a new song. Why don't you? Because you're the. Well, you're I, the music I guess guy. I'm already telling them. Exactly. <laughs> well, who who brought this to the attention of the world? Uh, several people. Well, several people, but the first time I saw anyone talking about it was the day that Beyonce's new album dropped. Um, yes. I follow an, uh, a listener named Ian, and yeah, shout out. Yeah, hey Ian, and they posted. Um, a little clip of the song and they were like does this sound familiar to anybody yeah it was like so, in, a, in his instagram story mm-hmm. and a uh off her new album renaissance a track called um what's it called again america has a problem sounds suspiciously the baseline is is basically the exact same baseline as sin um it's not even transposed it's in the same key and what I found is it's they're within a few BPM of each other. They're almost the same tempo. No one has admitted to anything yet, but there were there's a handful of people involved in the making of this track. I looked it up. Uh, there's no one I recognize. I'm thinking someone's a fan mm-hmm. and just kind of cribbed it and didn't really ask permission. Um it may maybe another Olivia Don Guido situation mm-hmm. where Beyonce's gotten a little bit of trouble on this album for a couple things oh, though. Yeah, uh, she had to remove like a sample 
uh, of milkshake, I think, that oh. she was using. And then she also had to, was requested to change some lyrics. Yeah. Uh, that were maybe a bit ableist. Maybe, maybe this album came out too quick. Maybe they needed, <laughs> maybe it needed to go back in the oven for like a few minutes. It wasn't quite done. I think it's a good album, but. Then the song sounds kind of, I'm not out here trying to hate. The song sounds kind of cool, but the fact remains it is the Sin bass line. Same rhythm, same notes. Play it. So this is a clip from Beyonce's America Has a Problem. I think she's getting a little weekend influenced on vocals, strangely enough. Maybe that's just what's popular right now. But anyway, l- listen to this bass real quick. Of course, here's the bass line from Sin by Nine Inch Nails. Now that bass synth is playing 16th notes and the Beyonce bass synth is uh, doing sustained notes, but that's splitting hairs. It is the same thing essentially. And so I did a little thing real quick, a quick and dirty mashup. Didn't even have to adjust any pitch because as I said, they're in the same key. So here's what they sound like on top of one another. <laughs> this is kind of groovy. <laughs> We're just grooving. <laughs> We're vibing to this. This theft. So yeah, I like the mashup better than yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna. I think I want to do a. I don't have time, but I want to do a full version. Yeah, it's kind of a <laughs> kind of like your Dua Lipa hand that feeds. Yeah, but th- I like this better than the Dua. The I Dua do Lipa. Too. I had to pitch shift because those songs aren't in the same mm-hmm. key. This basically does itself. Um, a YouTuber, at least one, had already done a mashup. By the way, mm-hmm. um, so I can't. I can't claim that I'm like the first to do it. I think this was their only video, and I subscribed to this user. Lemon Squeezer, Beyonce <laughs> X, Nine Inch Nails mashup. Lemon yeah, Squeezer is the username? Lemon Squeezer. Like Lemonade. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe it's a Beyonce Stan account, but that, that, that's the only video as far as I know. Um, also, going through this, it really does sound like he's saying soul sweat. Yeah, you're welcome. It does. Mm-hmm. That's what I always heard when I was young, so... The final thing I want to say is, if they just give Trent Reznor his flowers, just um, they could have just said, give, given him a writing credit. Six or seven people already have a writing credit on that one. Make him one of them. I think it would be all fine. I'd have no problem with this. But they probably should give him a little, 
Do you do you agree or do you have a different view? I think a writing credit would be nice. Yeah. I like I believe in giving credit where credit is due. So <laughs> Yeah, just just say I kind of crib this a little bit cuz I I really dig sin. I'm a fan. Okay, the next thing we got to thank Rooker for. What did what did Rooker bring to our attention? I think Rooker was going through like a Beastie Boys phase. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe just revisiting Paul's Boutique, which I did a little bit after this. But Rooker found and I, I just haven't listened to Paul's Boutique in a zillion years. Um, but a, a sample that was also used uh, by Rick Rubin in his Nine Inch Nails remix. You want to talk about that? His yeah. remix of Piggy. I had to. I had to uh, look up to make sure that Rick Rubin had nothing to do with the production on Paul's Boutique. That no, was the Dust Brothers. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then there's a connection there because the Dust Brothers, a sort of connection. The Dust Brothers are, um, they did the soundtrack to the David Fincher film Fight Club. Um, and David Fincher made Trent Reznor's personal in-house uh, scorer. The Dust Brothers also produced Mbop by Hanson. Wait, did they really? Yes. <laughs> I don't think I knew that. I looked it up today. I, okay. didn't, I didn't know it till today. Uh, their sound, their, their Fight Club stuff is really cool sounding. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so yeah, Piggy, Nothing Can Stop Me Now, I'll Further Down the Fragile, use the... Uh, further Down the Fragile? Fuck me. <laughs> that's that's what the remix album to the Fragile is called. Uh-huh. Further Down the Spiral. <laughs> further Down the Fragile was like a joke we made, like with Joey. Even Fragiler. Yeah, even Fragiler. Yeah. The Fragile 2. Um, the sample was from the Fatback Band, uh, the song "Put Your Love in My Tender Care," a song with a bunch of orgasmic moaning from a lady. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't it be sampled by some horny rappers? Um, so here's the fat back clip. It was slowed down a bit by Rick Rubin. We heard it in an earlier episode in the Piggy remix. And this is what it sounds like in High Plains Drifter, uh, which I never knew until Rooker let us know. A lot of moaning. This is a really cool beat. I blew out the speakers in my 97 Daewoo Nubira. Wait, was it? It wasn't a 97, was it? I can't remember the year. Anyway, I blew out the speakers listening to Paul's Boutique. I'm not shocked. Did you hear that bass? Like, it, it's like an absurd. It's almost like they left too much bass in the mix or, or they let it just go wild. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll also point out at least four other artists are also sampled in that song alone. I mean, that album... Paul's Boutique is just a big collage of samples. It is. And you know what? You Illegal could, samples. You couldn't make an album like that today. You couldn't do that today. <laughs> nope. Uh, you couldn't make a movie like uh, Blazing Saddles, and you couldn't make an album like Paul's <laughs> Boutique. <laughs> Jesus. Because it was... Is Paul's Boutique too offensive as well? Oh, no. It's just... It would be too expensive to clear every single sample that you wanted. True. Yeah. People lost their nerve to, to uh, not ask permission, ask forgiveness instead. Um, okay, I think that's all I had for Nine Inch News. Yeah, so I only have one more thing um, before we go. 
and dive into this episode. And that is to welcome a new member of the Nailed family. We're going to have uh, a researcher, someone to help me research. Um, we call we call him the Nintern. Our new Nintern. <laughs> so um, I want to extend a welcome and a thank you to Christopher G. Brown, who will be helping me with research. And we've already been tossing ideas back and forth. So yeah. it's going to be really, really great. And really, really great thankful. and helpful. He came to me out of the blue and said, can I uh, help you with research? Uh, it's, he's, it's just something he likes to do. And he's very good at it, as evidenced in a podcast he did that you should go listen to called discography deep dive but he did the first from what i understand he did the first um arc of episodes on it which was about every nin fan's favorite band and that's radiohead but i was listening their little bite-sized episodes and it was really well made very uh, exhaustively researched and that's what we like to bring to nailed so we're we're glad Christopher has joined the the inner circle, so to speak, here. Yeah, definitely. One more thing before we dive in. Yeah. I just want to say that this is going to be a longer episode, probably. So. Strap in. Settle. Get comfortable. Tune in. Get a nice drink, a a coffee. Yeah, get yourself a drink. Treat yourself. Glass of wine. Take a long road trip. Take a walk. Eat a gummy. Uh, Unless you're allergic. Unless you're allergic. You know, just just get comfortable, put on your jammy pants, whatever. We're probably going to be here a while. We're just making it longer. (laughs) I know. But also, I just want to say some of these topics I'm not going to go super in-depth on, but we will in future episodes, Yeah. um, whether they're bonus or on the main feed. So if there's something that I've skipped or only kind of skimmed over, we'll probably be going into more detail on it later. Um, So just, just a warning I can't get everything in this episode or it would be a zillion hours long. So, But often uh, people do come to us and give us extra tidbits and we do still like that. You can still do that. Oh, yeah. That's encouraged. Especially if we miss something or got something wrong, by all means. But with this research team we've put together, how could we ever get anything wrong? Okay. Okay. All right. Are you ready to dive into the prelude to Halo 14? Yes. Let's go. Okay, here we go. Hey, Blake. Yes, Jessica. It's September 21st, 1999. Where the fuck were you? <laughs> um, I think we talked about this a little bit. and I, I was off like listening to Red Hot Chili Peppers, right? In my summer between middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. Well, it's September 21st. It's not really Junior high. Anymore. Junior high and high school. It's... Oh, right. I was just starting. Just starting high school? Yeah. I was starting my senior year. Yeah. Freshman year for me. Yeah, well... That was the day that The Fragile was released to the world. Some could say that was the day the world went away. No, that was Halo 13. Never mind. Continue. So, uh, released September 21st, 1999, produced by Mulder and Reznor. Sorry, produced by Alan Mulder. 
Yeah. And when Trent you say Reznor. Mulder and, I expect you to say Scully. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. But yeah, Alan Mulder and, and Reznor, the only two listed producers? Yes. Yeah. Uh, engineered and mixed by Mulder and Scully. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I do that. this all the time now. And we know that other engineers were messing about. We talked about it yes. last time. And I want to do a bonus that maybe on. Um, other collaborators and people who did input yeah. on the album. So we won't get it really deep into that. Will we talk about Albini in that one? Probably. Let's let's make a note of that. Mental note. <laughs> okay. Uh, and Albini, if you're listening. Yes. So recorded and mixed at Nothing Studios in New Orleans. Before we go too deep into the basis of this episode, right? Yeah. I want to talk about... Trent's teasing of the fragile because there were a lot of interviews between, you know, I would say between 96 and 99, 97 and 99, where he was um, promoting things he was working on, like the perfect drug and the lost highway soundtrack. And people would ask him, how's the new album? What's it sounding like? And so I thought it might be fun to read to you some of these descriptions that Reznor had. And we that can is, see that does sound fun. I do remember one, I think we played on the show when mm-hmm. we were doing Perfect Drug, mm-hmm. where he gave very weird descriptions of mm-hmm. what the next album might be like. Yeah, this is weird. Okay, so this is from Ray Gun in 1997. And he said, if this makes sense, it's more song-oriented, less dense, more about the song. That may change, but the way it's going right now is more minimal and more organic, but more electronic at the same time. <laughs> what? <laughs> Somehow, I think that actually came true. I yeah, think that part. Yeah, yeah. But less parts, and each part is more important than on like broken, where there's a million parts on top of each other. I'd like to have a good melody, and that doesn't necessarily mean more accessible or more commercial. I'm more into studying the art form of writing a good song. Okay, so, okay. that's a cool endeavor, but. All right. So Entertainment Weekly, 1997, he said, I'm trying to get out of the confined guitar, bass, drum, rock band formula. And they also write that he is working with a collaborator, Nine Inch Nails guitarist Danny Lohner, for the first time. They say that although he's been soaking his ears in techno, Reznor says the new material doesn't sound like what's happening in clubs now. I'm trying to make an old Prince record, I think. It never sounded like an old Prince record to me, but that would have been interesting. Okay. Um, Edna Gunderson of USA Today wrote in 1999, he's finished 20 tracks and has another 25 demos on the assembly line. He's contemplating a double album, one instrumental disc and one with vocals. By the time it's sorted out, I hope it makes a pretty monumental statement in terms of where I'm at. And then Reznor gave a little capsule review of what the album sounded like by saying, imagine Tom Waits on a bayou filtered through a funk blender and slowed down. Uh, We'll as, come back to Tom as goofy, in a minute, yeah, we will. as goofy as that description is, it's not wrong <laughs> entirely. <laughs> okay, from Kerrang. The new Nine Inch Nails album will not be titled Dissonance, as had been recently reported elsewhere. <laughs> that would be a, yeah, that's definitely a fan uh, created thing, but that would be funny. Yeah. That was just the name of the tour that we did with Bowie, scoffs Reznor. It's w- actually going to be called Discordance. <laughs> It'll mean something later. The beauty of the internet converted that into our album title. The working title right now is The Fragile, although I'll probably hate that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Interesting. I wonder if he did grow to hate it. What will it sound like? I really don't listen to rock music anymore. The new record is focused on taking an element of rhythm and blues and funk. In the Prince sense, not the Red Hot Chili Pepper sense. <laughs> Gotta clarify. Ouch. <laughs> and juxtaposing it with an Aphex Twin-ish approach. It has the feel of something you might understand, but the sound of a stereo exploding. 
with a nice melodic pop song on top. Sometimes that's true. It's it, it's also a statement so wacky it's hard to disprove. Mm-hmm. And then Kareng asks about guitars, and he says, pretty much all I've been playing with lately is guitar, and I'm finally getting to the point where I think I'm okay at it, but it's not going to be a guitar-sounding record. It'll be very electronic and deconstructed. I know he was still working on it. Much of the Fragile is very guitar-sounding, especially compared to past stuff. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that, too. Yeah. So now I want to talk about maybe some... I hate this word so much, Blake. Is it moist? It's not moist. Aural. Aural? Or oh yeah. I never know quite how to pronounce that, but I people usually just say Do oral. Do they say it like oral? Yeah, I think they just say it the same as oral. I don't like that at all. I know it's it's gross because we have dirty minds, but people just say like oral. Okay. So, Meaning of of the of ear, ears. Of the sense of hearing. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about Maybe some oral inspirations for the fragile. Maybe some things. You could say some... sonic. Okay, we'll try that. Why not? So I want to talk about some sonic inspiration. Now I'm just thinking of the hedgehog. I'm thinking of Sonic Youth, but yeah, the hedgehog will work too. How about Sonic's some good. key musical touchstones that Reznor visited? Sure, let's do it. And sought inspiration from while making this album. Does that sound good? Yeah, we just as long as we keep trucking, <laughs> I'm good with okay. with it. So, according to an interview in Kerrang, Reznor said that none of the reference points for The Fragile were current except for maybe one thing. Ooh, Red Hot Chili Peppers? He already said distinctly not oh, yeah. <laughs> Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's right. Um, what, what do we consider current? It would be something that was contemporary at that time. Con- contemporary within a few years? Mm-hmm. Like, Well, I think the band formed in like early 90s, like 92 um, and I saw them. They opened for Beck. They were on, they when Beck was on his Odelay tour and stopped in Springfield in 1997, his supporting acts were The Roots and Atari Teenage Riot. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Because he was listening to them at the time. Yes. So here is, I'm going to play a little clip of Reznor and he's talking about Atari Teenage Riot. And this is when he was hosting um, an Australian music program, music video program called Rage. Ah, yes. And this is actually, if you've never seen it, it's actually good just to have the playlist of videos he selected. Yeah. Um, Because you can just kind of listen to like Jesus and Mary Chain and New Order. It's like Ween, all his bands, all his favorites. It's like Trent's made you a Spotify playlist. Basically. In the olden days. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, Here he is. He's going to be talking about Atari Teenage Riot. Uh, When we were recording The Fragile, um, someone brought a record in and put it on that uh, our CD put in that uh, confounded us because of the fury and the, just the wrong soundingness of it. Um, we found out it was Atari Teenage Riot. And it was very inspiring because, again, it, it was approaching simple kind of low-tech technology thrown together into such a seemingly careless fashion that we experimented with doing some of the same sort of things just, just for our own ex- ex- exploration, not so much anything to release. And realize how hard it is to do that, especially when um, you have too much equipment. And ended up becoming like a, one of my favorite albums and just something I really like to listen to. So when the new one came out, um, 60 Second Wipeout, we had just gone to Europe 
Are we going to Europe? We have a list of choice of potential opening acts, and uh, I insisted on seeing if Tari Teenage Riot could be on that bill because I thought it would be an interesting um, juxtaposition. Plus, I wanted to meet the guys and see if I could extract their secrets from them, or at least um, see see their approach because it was very different to mine. Now, what's yeah. the, what's the difference between Atari Teenage Riot and the Ataris? Well, uh, they're different, different bands, different right? bands, different eras, and okay, one band made it off a cover song. That's right. No, the Ataris <laughs> were an American band, weren't they? Atari Teenage Riot are apparently a band from Berlin. Mm, they're German, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really weird that they opened for Beck, of all people. But yeah. Anyway, he said that they were the only current band that he thought had any substance in this article, which is bonkers to me. I mean, he w- I if don't, you're he... looking at like mainstream rock acts, yeah, most of them sucked in the, mm-hmm. in the especially in the late '90s. But there was there was good like, shit. Uh, did no one tell him about like at the drive-in? They were kicking. Some I know. Ass. Like what the fuck? He just wasn't, he probably wasn't listening to a lot. And I got in those kind of funks for years Mm -hmm. where I'm not listening to anybody. So I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I've done that before. You know, what really sucks about depression is the things that you love, you just don't care Mm -hmm. about. And you just. But then one, like one amazing band will come along and you'll be like, holy shit, this is the best thing I've heard in a decade. Yeah. Because it's like the only thing you've heard in a while, but they're good enough. They can kind of bring you out of that funk. Yeah, definitely. Um, other artists that he mentioned in this article include like Lou Reed, Iggy Pop, Queen, Pink Floyd. Um, another journalist compared The Fragile to The Wall, and Reznor said, I'm not surprised with your comparison. I listened to The Wall dozens of times, so I'll take that as a compliment. At times, I imagined Roger Waters looking in the mirror and actually seeing the madness that scared him. That's why he wrote The Wall, the study of taking his soul to pieces and chasing away all the demons. Similarly, the process of recording The Fragile was some kind of exorcism for me, fixing everything that wasn't working properly in my head, a two-year hole in my life history. Damn. And then we already had the conversation earlier about how The Wall is more like um, Downward Spiral, or the reverse of that, rather. Even though I originally also... uh, Connected it with the fragile mostly mm-hmm. because of the double albumness of. I mean, it can be both things. <laughs> yeah, true. So. He just really likes Pink Floyd. That's yeah. the especially that here. album. Especially, yeah, that yeah. one. Um, so Danny Loner said um, that while they were recording the fragile, uh, that they played a lot of Tom Waits's album Bone Machine. Mm, so this is what they're like listening to. Like what the boys are chilling to while they're eating some, I don't know. They're uh, taking a break. They're taking a break. They're playing some Tom Waits and they're eating some. uh, uh, Funyuns. I wasn't going to say Funyuns. I was thinking like uh, jambalaya or gumbo or (laughs) something like that. Yeah. Yeah. What do you call snails? Uh, Escargot. Yeah, that. My cargo. Anyway. Uh, Yeah. So. Which uh, I listened to Bone Machine for the first time ever. Did you like it? um, I like parts of it. How do you feel about the opening track, The Earth Died Screaming? Yeah, it was it's difficult and the whole album can be difficult. Uh, but some parts are really cool. It I, I wouldn't say it's like the fragile, maybe in a few I think there's some percussive elements, yeah. maybe. Percussion is the thing that's most like the fragile. Yeah. 
I think I know the song that sounds most like Bone Machine. And it's mostly the percussion of I'm looking forward to joining you finally. Because it's like, it sounds like wood slapping against a concrete wall in a a reverby basement. And that's apparently how Bone Machine was recorded. Yeah. Just in a cement basement. Yeah. I think when Christopher and I were talking, he said something about like the junkyard percussion. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. That's a good um, comparison. Yeah. Then in an issue of Spin in 2000, he cited these albums as um, kind of touchstones for the fragile Jesus and Mary Chain Psycho Candy. My Bloody Valentine's isn't anything, which I believe mm. was also engineered by Alan Mulder. Mm. And then The Beatles, The White Album, and David Bowie's Low, again. But he said specifically that those records, The White Album and Low, seem to shatter this mold of what a pop song has to do. Instead of just verse, chorus, verse, you could use weird structures. We, he and Mulder, were like, let's go for it. Let's just let it be Queen style. Let's make it more cinematic or theatrical. So, yeah. Um, And then one more. I'm not, I don't want to get too into this because I don't know enough about um, classical composers. (laughs) Uh, But um, another person, a composer I do want to mention is Debussy, who Reznor is a fan of. Um, And Debussy was like an impressionistic composer. And so uh, basically he would make music that kind of implies a visual or music that evokes a mood or a feeling. It's more about atmosphere or scene. It's more about vibes. (laughs) And... Just, you know, no songs, just vibes. So I have a clip of Reznor here. Um, He is being interviewed on Much Music in April of 2000. I don't know the name of the person who is interviewing him, but this is a question that a young fan brings forth about classical influence on this record. Cool. Um, We have a question uh, from Conrad. Conrad. Hi, Trent. Um, I'd like to know what aspects of classical music do you incorporate with your music? Incorporate, sorry. Um, I, I studied piano for quite a while in my youth and got a classical kind of backdrop. And I don't consciously sit down and try to um, apply that, but I realize that um, harmonically I do, that it comes out when I start working on things. On this record, like um, Impressionistic Music, the ABC was a fairly big influence. And I tried to explore the idea of. Um, like impressionist music, music that implies a visual. A lot of these songs started with a visual kind of, um, I'd picture a place, and then I'd just try to make a soundtrack or a setting to put that in. Um, that's probably the most direct influence that one. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, a lot of your, your video work is always really incredibly beautiful or interesting images, and you've done soundtrack work. What are some of the visuals that came to you when you were creating The Fragile? Well, I spent uh, a fair amount of time in Big Sur, going insane when I started this record and it's like a really beautiful place on the side of a mountain that's uh, it's very um, very strange place and that and that was a good place to sit back and just think of um, visualize things and then I take that to the studio I'm not making a lot of sense right now but in the studio we'd sit around and um, you might picture say a, a swamp and try to put take a riff, maybe on guitar, and try to almost dress the set with sound to make it seem like it might be in that place. And we really started most songs with that kind of um, 
idea, trying to put it in an environment and a mood. He said, make your guitar sound like a swamp, and mm. clearly he's talking about the mark has been made. Okay. <laughs> Jess is like... Sorry, I was getting, Blake <laughs> getting the next insane. video ready. No one cares <laughs> about Blake's input. Yeah. So those are some of the sonic inspirations that Reznor has cited and other people have cited who have worked on The Fragile. So I just thought that was kind of interesting to go over very quickly. Yeah. I don't want to get too involved on this topic because I don't necessarily like giving my interpretation of things. But I do want to go over some of the themes and ideas in this album that Reznor himself has talked about. Just kind of briefly touch on them. But... One of the things I want to talk about is maybe the difference between like the downward spiral and the fragile, because a lot of people kind of tie them together as as the fragile being like a sequel, like it's the same character and this is their new yeah uh, the, a, a, another concept album about the same kind of character the, the same or the dude same character yeah who just went through the downward spiral yeah. and is now going through the fragile exactly so. In the LA Times, when he was asked about the differences between uh, the downward spiral and the fragile, Reznor said, The downward spiral was a sleeker machine. It was tougher, more muscle flexing. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted this album, lyrically and sonically, to sound like there was something inherently flawed in the situation, like someone struggling to pull the pieces together. The downward spiral was about peeling off layers and arriving at a naked, ugly end. This album starts out at the end, then attempts to create order from chaos, but it never reaches mm. that goal. It's probably a bleaker album because it arrives back where it starts. It's yeah. that same emotion. Um, that's, yeah, that's always been kind of how I see it. I think that's a good description. Yeah. And so here's more. In the New York Times, he said, The only real conceptual thing was the title, The Fragile. I knew that before I started. I didn't want it to be a slick, shiny machine. There he is again, machine. <laughs> I didn't want it to be tough. The downward spiral has a brutality and an iciness that is a way to prevent you from getting inside. It's an armor. On this record, I wanted it to be like you're trying to construct something out of scraps in a desperation to make sense of things and find order or repair purpose, but it's inherently flawed. You build an empire on a fault line. Hmm. Is it an empire of dirt? <laughs> Um, and again, he's talking about like repair, like he uses the same key phrases. I read so many of these interviews. Yeah. I bet you nearly went nuts. I really did. And honestly, I just want to say it's got to be rough being a musician or, um, an actor who has to go on these press tours where yes. you're just like in a hotel and you just have interviewer after interviewer coming in and asking you the same questions. Well, you'll probably slip into you could slip into like a script where you're given exactly. the same questions keep coming. You'll keep giving the same answer. Yeah. And you don't expect that someday they're all going to be compiled in someone's <laughs> podcast because the podcast doesn't exist yet. Yeah. So you're like, uh, I can get away with saying the same type of things. Yeah. But, I mean, he just uses the same key phrases, yeah. right? Like organic and uh, repair. And I mean, there's just a lot. He also used that expression empire on a fault line a few times. Oh, weird. Um, yeah. So I've never was, heard it. I, but it's not bad. Yeah. So to USA Today, he said, to me, this record is an attempt at repair. It attempts to put the pieces back together, but it's inherently flawed. 
flaw. You'll hear that over and over. Mm -hmm. In the end, you don't arrive. You swallow your tail. I wanted it to sound distressed and delicate, like it's not strong enough to hold together. Hmm. I, I think I hear that. So to NME in 1999, he said, I was more intrigued by the record having a distressed quality about it, something that sounded a bit old or was starting to decay. There was no agenda when we started, but in the end, I felt there was a story there, and the story was about my own self-repair. Hmm. So, accidentally, a concept album more than, because he didn't, he said he didn't start with a story. No, but as he listened to it, and as he worked on it, a story kind of came together, right? Yeah. And it was more about himself, because he has, he talked about like how, this album kind of saved him like recording this album mm. kind of drew him out of the depression and and it helped him in a lot of uh ways with a lot of the problems he was dealing with at the time this album was kind of like his saving yeah grace i i don't know if that's really what i'm trying to say no i get it but I, the album kind of like saved him right it pulled him out of those depths and that's what he's saying here is as he was listening to it he realized oh this is about like about me, me? <laughs> coming to terms with these things and and trying to repair and fix myself in my own way. Music is always the thing that I've used to sort this out, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, he does sound like he's talking to someone in a lot of these songs is what I was noticing listening lately. But I guess the person he's talking to could also, Jess is pointing at me herself talking to someone, but you, possibly you're talking to yourself, yeah. Exactly. Um, and then he told Spin in 2000, and this is something you're going to hear over and over again, is just things falling apart. Hmm. Things cannot stay together. Things cannot The center hold. cannot hold. Exactly. I wanted this record to sound like it was falling apart, so I really went for imperfection. Shakespeare. Mm. But. <laughs> so now we're going to talk a little bit about the sound of the fragile. Just kind of briefly touch on it. There's a lot going on, so I'm not going to pretend that this is talking about everything. It's just kind of the album as a whole, right? Yeah. And just how did he like create these sounds? You know, um, how did he incorporate like more organic things? How did he get that imperfect organic feel yeah. in this album well, that he keeps talking we about? We talked right? about in Downward Spiral how nearly everything was electronic, even mm -hmm. the stuff that sounded real, what turned out to be electronic. The Fragile is like a, a jarring how, how many acoustic and organic, like humanly played instruments you're hearing. Mm -hmm. So um, I, he wanted to make music with a more human feel. And then the album's called The Fragile. And I was just thinking like humans are frail. Uh, we're fragile. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're fragile little pieces of meat. Yep. Anyway, so in the Sunday Times, Reznor said that he had become dissatisfied with everything coming out of a drum machine, right? And he wanted to make that more human sounding music. He said, I wanted to build a beast that was flawed from the inside and seemed as though it might at any moment collapse. One way was to use a lot more real instruments and maybe tune them strangely. So I'm going to play a clip and it's that same Much Music interview. Mm -hmm. And she, uh, this interviewer is going to ask him about um, the instruments that he used on the album and why he went that way. So Nice. Did you use a, a, a great deal of different noises? On this particular album, I'm reading like ukulele and, and different sort of sound sources. Yeah, when I play any instrument, I can make noise on it. <laughs> um, it was a lot more organic things this time. And instead of um, relying on 
synthesizers and samplers. A lot of it was came from real instruments because I wanted to contribute to the sound of something that might fall apart. And mm. real instruments um, have natural imperfections; they're, they're out of tune a little bit, or can be. And um, I wanted to have a naivety of kind of the feeling that at any moment it might topple. I hear that. Uh... In a big way, the instrument falling apart, the imperfect acoustic instrument. See the bridge of the title track, The Fragile. So in Guitar World in 1999, he said, This record is mostly guitar, but it doesn't necessarily sound like it. I needed an expressive way to voice a sense of fragility of everything not all fitting nicely. So I chose guitars or stringed instruments to play in sounds because by nature they're imperfect. Every guitar sounds a bit different. You can bend a string, there's fret buzz, it's out of tune. With a synth, it's more controlled, there's less randomness. When you play a key, it presses a contact, it plays a note based on a computer program. The new stuff is an exploration of different moods and feels and tensions without sledgehammering your skull against a wall the whole time. <laughs> so less like the album Broken, yeah. which is a sledgehammer to the skull. <laughs> so different moods, feels... Trent's just about the vibes, guys. Trent's in his feels right now is what he's mm -hmm. trying to say. <laughs> but it is a very vibey album. Yeah. So we told Gaffa Magazine in 99, this time it was recorded on computers, but it was real instruments being manipulated, and that meant it had flaws. It was played in a strange way and on defective instruments. He said defective instruments. Okay. I've heard that they went out to like junk stores and would just buy like old shitty toy ukuleles broken, that have been yeah. just out of tune damaged instruments and use them and that's how they get so many of those like really weird sounds um yeah my it sounds a little off right because you're listening and you're like yeah. okay this is a guitar obviously but it sounds so some stuff's not quite in tune yeah. and that's something i think that he and attica still do like i think oh they yeah still... they let they search the world for bizarre bespoke instruments now mm-hmm Okay, then when it's processed by a computer, it can sometimes sound very mechanical, but most of the time it won't. Some music should be perfect, and some has beauty in the imperfection. When you're working with computers, it's easy to make it too perfect. Then it gets boring and cold. When you're working with a media where you can push a button and then everything will be perfect, then it's hard to keep it coincidental and fragile. Mm. He wants Hence it to sound like it might album. break at any moment, right? That there's, It's just barely hanging on. The album title's making more sense now. <laughs> so um, I want to play a clip from um, a show called Box Talk that aired on The Box. Do you remember The Box? I don't like the title Box Talk I, <laughs> at all. I remember The Box. What Was it the music video channel you could call into? Yeah, and you could request videos. Um, yeah. I remember doing that at my friend's house because they had like a satellite and I think that was it you could you couldn't get it over the regular antenna? I don't think you could. You had to have like we didn't have it and we had cable. So either their cable package was expanded or they had a satellite. We didn't know. have it. We couldn't get it. I don't know why. Uh, I saw it at friends' houses. I think the only music video people requested was "Baby Got Back." <laughs> Well, that was a long time ago. But yeah, I I remember it. I remember being at my friend's house and I had not seen. There was like a Bush video I hadn't seen yet, like Come Down or something. I was a big Bush fan and when I was in boy, yeah. when I was 13 or 14. Careful with those Gavin Rosdale videos, young Jessica. I don't know what you're getting into. <laughs> but I remember calling and like requesting Come Down, I think. I bet you did. I bet you did. <laughs> yeah. So um, 
Anyway, here he is. Let's let's listen to him talk a little bit on the box. Nice. Box um, talk. <laughs> these are just some sonic concepts for the fragile. So when we started working on the record, when I say we, it was really um Alan Mulder, producer, and myself. Um we had some concepts, not so much lyrically, but musically, that we wanted to experiment with. And um it was the idea of building a, a broken machine made of organic parts. And I wanted it to sound not like the downward spiral where it was um, kind of cold and mechanical, but to sound like it might it, it might uh, collapse within itself at any time. So um, with that as one guideline, and the other guideline was I realized that if I just sat down and played, stuff kept coming out. And I tend to overthink things if I if I let myself do that. So I wanted to just um, let it all come from subconscious and see what happened. And so we just generated stuff and stuff and stuff. And we didn't know if it would be a soundtrack to some movie someday or if it was going to be a weird um, experimental art rock or pop songs. I just want to read one more quote because I really like the way uh, Trent phrased this. It's kind of poetic. <laughs> mm. um, this is in an issue of Spin, and he says, Sonically, we approached the songs with instruments that were broken, not mic'd right or out of tune. This isn't a tough, hard machine like the downward spiral. He really wants he, to emphasize that this is not... Listen. The downward spiral is a machine. It was tough. It was cold. It was hard. It was icy. This is... Couldn't get in there. You couldn't... Yeah. This is fragile. <laughs> so... Um, this one is rusted, shot. There's moss growing up the side of it, clay mm. and paper clips holding it together. Pieces can fall off at any time. I tried to make it seem distressed on every level I could think of. The concept of fragility molds it all together. I'm thinking, well, I was thinking of the moss and then the vines growing up an old building. Mm -hmm. And then I was also thinking of rotting carry-on with flies buzzing around it, which you hear in the final track yeah which i feel like also kind of ties you back to tds because of the the insect the the buzzing the fly mm, sounds yeah the, there was a yeah. lot of that on tds yeah. it's very very literal in the ripe with decay yeah. appropriately titled so um now that we kind of know what Reznor wanted the album to sound like sonically like the themes he he had in mind as he went into this let's just talk about like how they started writing and recording the album. So Mulder, in an interview that I was watching, he said that he was asked to help produce The Fragile when he was helping to mix The Perfect Drug. So, hmm. I mean, I'm not sure. Perfect Drug came out in 97, so I'm not sure when exactly that was mixed. Um, so that's interesting because in a Spin article, he said that Rick Rubin was going to be producing it. Yeah, there's... Maybe there was like an interpersonal conflict there and that's what led yeah. to Ruben not being the guy maybe so the only quote I could find from Reznor about Ruben was in an issue of Ray Gun in 1998 <laughs> there are too many R's that's why it's hard to... <laughs> Ruben speaks to, to Reznor and Ray Gun and regales the uh... God. <laughs> so Reznor said and Rick Ruben 
There may be some degree of consultation and collaboration, but I started doing this myself and I realized I needed a kind of undiluted amount of time to splatter my brains all over a piece of paper. Oh my. So what I think is, well, there could have been scheduling conflicts, right? Mm -hmm. Reznor maybe wanted more of Ruben's attention than Ruben was willing to give, right? <laughs> because this album took him two years to make, right? And it was, yeah. from what I've heard, it was like every day for those two years, seven days a week, they were in a studio yeah, for- Yeah, they lived there, basically. Basically, for like, you know, 11, 12, so it's a full -time, 14 hours More than a, a full-time job, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's possible that Ruben, I don't know a lot about Rick Ruben, I'm not gonna lie, but his production method is pretty unorthodox, I've am I right? Uh, sure. I, I don't know a whole lot other than what hearsay that he has produced albums via Skype, but that's probably the latter day <laughs> yeah. Ruben. Well, I was talking to Christopher and I was like, Hey, do you know anything about this? Have you found anything about this? And he's like, no, I haven't, but it could be because of Ruben's, you know, he's, he's kind of different in how he produces albums where he's not there all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. He might show up after a week, after they've been recording and after the engineers have done their thing and he'll give feedback, you know, probably while he's laying down on a couch somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Um, and uh, also, Christopher told me that a while ago he found an article, I think, where Anthony Kiedis was talking about making Californication and Ruben apparently is just not a fan of instrumentals, which I don't think that would really gel with Reznor. Maybe that's point. where it all broke down. Reznor yeah. was like, I want to do... Five or six instrumentals on this one. Yeah. I also wrote like a hundred, by the way. Yeah. I think that Ruben's style is maybe just a little bit too laissez-faire. Um, just too much hands-off. He's not as in... He, he does a hell of a lot of projects. Does a lot of projects. So maybe spread thin. Maybe. But I, I think he's just not the right fit for Reznor at that time. Right. Right. Then he ended up producing the, the Hurt cover. <laughs> so... Uh, Alan Mulder, here he is on an interview with Andrew Sheps. This is like a, a I don't really know what this is. Is Andrew talks to awesome people? So. Okay. Okay. But here he is. He's talking about the initial meeting with Reznor to discuss the fragile. And then I think I went out and mixed Perfect Drug. And that's when he asked me to do the fragile. And that was two years in new orleans yeah we should talk about that a little bit if you don't mind because well, you could probably thing. just say oh it was fine but <laughs> it was brilliant it was the most fun i've had doing an album this so good i bought the desk this is the desk i did it on wow and uh, i've kind of formed an attachment from sitting at it for two years so i turned up okay ready to go normally i always ask to hear stuff beforehand there's a reason for that, because when I turned up, he'd only got one song. There's one song he'd written, a cover version of Metal by Gary Newman, huh. and 172 bits of music, varying from loops to slightly more involved songs. And so we just went, we just kept going through them. And I don't think he wanted to sing at the time very much. So we ended up doing a lot of instrumentally stuff to just because I was there, so that meant he had to work. <laughs> so I got to do anything I wanted. You know, we just experimented and messed around. It, it was, I think people probably think we spend for, we used to spend forever on sounds, which we didn't. Most sounds would be got pretty quick. 
and then you we'd record it and we'd, we'd blitz these songs for a couple of days or three days put them away next one next one then about three months later you'd come back and you'd forgotten what you'd done you and every time, fortunately, we just went, wow, that was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> so we ended up with all these songs. That's why it's a big album, a long, a long album. And uh, that's why and some of them, there was no room for vocals by the end of it because he'd filled all the spaces up with, <laughs> with uh, music and there's no room. So we got some good instrumentals. It was never over. It was the beginning of the it's never over till it's over. Do you think um, Reznor likes to have a British sidekick and sort of replaced Mulder with Atticus? I think Mulder works, worked with them still a little bit after this. Oh, there was some overlap, but mm-hmm. Trent was maybe like, I like this Brit a little better. <laughs> so was Flood the, the first Brit? No, I guess it wouldn't have been the first Brit. He worked with um, uh, some producers on Pretty Hate Machine. Mm. Um, anyway, just a theory. Okay. Um, as he pointed out there, like they, they would record bits and then come back to it later. Right. And they'd be like, oh, wow, this is so much better than we remember, which is kind of a a fun way, I guess, of making, uh, an album. I've been there as someone who takes forever to make things and has been in a bunch of bands. It's, you'll come back to something way later and it's not like... (laughs) As good as the fragile, but you'll be like, oh, oh yeah, this thing exists. Mm-hmm. Forgot about that. So I think I found this in the Sound on Sound article in 1999. They recorded about 120 songs, according to this article, <laughs> for the fragile. Um, and of course, those had to be whittled down, you know, to the, the double album format. Songs is songs, instrumental snippets and loops and bits and pieces. Yeah. So... What they also did, because they would get kind of bored of just recording all the time, and also they were feeling like they weren't really getting anything done, is that they would mix. They would just take breaks and just mix stuff, right? So they would mix songs at uh, various stages during during the recording period. So some tracks were mixed more than a year before the album was (laughs) even completed, which kind of caused a little bit of... um, Concern, you know, Reznor and Mulder had a little bit concern about consistency of yeah, the album and how to really keep it consistent. About that. Yep. Yeah. So what um, Mulder said was that he thinks that because they did it all in the same studio and with the same people, that it kind of helped with the consistency. Yeah. Um, and the material was pretty varied, so that also kind of helped. Right. But they did have to go back, obviously, and work in transitions. Yeah. I was going to say the transitions and the sequencing, Bob Ezrin. Yeah. Uh, help help that uh, yeah. flow together nicely. Yeah. Like, I think, like, Somewhat Damaged was one of the, it might have been, like, a perfect drug era kind yeah, of the, song. Yeah, that was, uh, I kept reading that that was one of the earliest tracks they worked on. Um, you talked about the White Album earlier. That's another double album. To me, it's full, it's full of great songs. There's not a lot of consistency in the way it, uh, the recordings sound song to song. That's true of every Beatles album to me. It'll go mm-hmm. ju- jump wildly from like the way one recording sounds to the next. They're yeah. not concept album. Well, okay, sometimes they are concept albums. But anyway, the Fragile does a better job of consistency and flow despite long periods in, in between 
working on uh, tracks. Yeah. So um, Reznor told the New York Times, here we're going to talk about unused material, right? He said, there is an unbelievable amount of unused material. For every track that's on each song, there are 10 more that aren't used. So if there are 72 tracks on a song, there are 700 that you didn't hear. You know, oh my. <laughs> wait. Okay. So we're not talking about, we're talking about multi-tracks yes. in Pro Tools. We're yes. Because everything yeah. was done in Pro Tools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very Pro tools Yeah, And also TDS was a Pro tools album, but it was the... It might have been Sound Tools, which was what Pro Tools was called first. Um, yeah, that's a lot of goddamn tracks. I was just, sorry, while you were saying that, I was thinking about Deviations 1 and mm -hmm. how it's called Deviations 1. And I'm like, that has a bunch of the those snippets and things, mm -hmm. right? That didn't make the album. What if there is a Deviations 2 at some point? Because there's so many more that we never heard. The fact that it's called Deviations 1 right. makes you think that there's going to be. Right. Yeah. Like, come on. There's ghosts and there's deviations. <laughs> we, we got a bunch of ghosts. Let, let's get some more of those deviations in there. That's right. Also, while they were recording, I think Mulder was talking about this in, in that interview clip. He said briefly something about this. But most of the songs at the halfway point still had no lyrics and no vocals. Like Reznor didn't want to write. He didn't want to record vocals at this point. Um, As a person who can't write lyrics and hates doing vocals, I, I get that wanting <laughs> to leave it till the very last. But like some of these are so they're so song oriented and vocally that. I can't imagine yeah. how that worked out so well. Yeah. So Reznor told Kerrang, um, we usually had too many ideas and were unfocused. Halfway through the recording, there were no lyrics at all. It was all weird soundscapes like film music, which I think he kind of talked about that earlier, right? Always trying to get film music. <laughs> uh, it's like, should have done a career in film music, Trent. Yeah. But he said, we wanted an important record, not an esoteric, self-indulgent thing from two guys who had lost their minds. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does come across a little like that, uh, but in a good way. Yeah. So um, I just want to talk a little bit about the lyrics. I'm not going to talk a lot. We can talk about them per song. But he got he always gets a lot of, especially in a very infamous Pitchfork review of this album, mm. they make fun of the <laughs> rhyming scheme a lot because oh. he uses a lot of AA rhyming. And it's very apparent in some songs and in some songs it's not. So what does AA rhyming, like what does an AA rhyme scheme mean? If it's I when say you that? rhyme soul with whole and they're in a... Uh, uh, Back, it's just when you're back to back lines mm -hmm. rather than like a soul something whole something mm -hmm. at the end of each line. Say there are four lines. You just do soul and whole <laughs> back to back, baby. Soul, whole, dull, mole. I'd rather die. And that's the third one's not rhyming. Yeah, breaks and then, it up. Then yeah. give you control. Yeah. Um, soul and whole is on the fragile, by the way. Yeah. And that is kind of. Um, Looked upon as by lyric snobs as maybe not good songwriting, as lazy songwriting, it, as some with some with some artists, it does not sound good to do a a rhyme scheme. He he pulls it off. I feel like in this, I I never know. It never jumped out to me that it that the rhyme scheme was bad on this album. I never I never really thought about it. Like I just yeah. It, he makes it sound fine, I think. 
What I come to Nine Inch Nails for is a little bit different than like what I listen to Phoebe Bridgers for. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. Like Phoebe Bridgers is has witty wordplay. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not looking for that from Trent Reznor. Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, he does have a lot of fun wordplay, but it's not the same kind of yeah, writing about styles fist at all. And holes. I mean, yeah. But <laughs> sorry. Anyway, that's not necessarily why I listen to Nine Inch Nails or. But I also, it never stuck out to me. Like, I never really thought about it, I guess. Maybe that's just me. I the only th- the only reason I kept saying The Soul and Hole is because of the um, 60 songs that explain the 90s, mm-hmm. where he talks about that. And then listening to No You Don't the other day was like, he just did Soul and Hole again. <laughs> well, I think he also likes to revisit um, some of He his, does. He likes yeah. to retread the same... Um, or even reference previous. It's just self-referential. Yeah, I think it's yeah, like just sure. kind of a, a way to build upon what you've already. It's a way to like keep fans kind of. I'm trying to think. Yeah, of how to it's say like it. it's like it's, an inner thing. It's like something that maybe only like really heavy fan service listeners. Like yeah, like would notice, right? If you're right. a casual listener, you might not notice all the filthy casuals. Nothing won't. can stop me now. You know what I mean? Right. But and if, it, it's it's across the decades and across yeah. the albums. I think it's kind of just a legend story. The not lore. <laughs> kind of. It's kind of a way to build. The world building of kind of not, yeah. maybe that's the world sort word of. I'm trying to say kind of uh, there is well especially once year zero came into the picture there was world building in a very serious way yeah so here's what I want to say he told Gaffa um, I put a lot into the lyrics they're always the hardest to do. To be honest, when I was writing The Fragile, I suffered from a very bad depression, and I didn't want to write lyrics. I didn't wish to look for what was going on inside of me. I think my lack of trust in the lyrics makes this album less lyrically intense, as perhaps some of the previous stuff has been. I'm not saying that I don't like them. My head was just in a different place when I made this album. The music became more expressive. It was interesting for me to focus on the music this time. I don't hope it will continue to be this way. If I had to start an album today, I would wish to solely concentrate on the lyrics. I think I was leaning too much against the music this time, and I did it because I was afraid of being honest. I'm glad he uh, really leaned into the music, though. (laughs) (laughs) I think it made it a better album than if he would have only cared about lyrics. Yeah. Why don't we take a little break? Okay. Uh, And when we come back, we'll talk briefly about the artwork of Halo 14. And we're back. And we're back. To talk about the artwork of Halo 14. I'm not going to go super in-depth because I want to do a bonus episode. Oh, right. So, um, but designed by David Carson. Mm Mm-hmm. From what I've read... The back of the album yes. was originally intended to I've heard be this too. The, front. the front. The one that ha- it's green has flowers on mm-hmm. it. So that was originally going to be the cover, but Reznor changed his mind. Um, according to Carson, it's possible that Reznor thought it was maybe kind of irritating. Irritating. Uh huh. And I thought so you were they say wussy because it has flowers <laughs> on it. But there must have been something that he liked about it because he kept the image, right? Like it's still the there. Back. It's just on the back. I think the front was going to be on the back, if I'm not mistaken. I like the idea of the back being the front. Like I like that better. I I mean, 
I don't think I like it better. I think what they chose for the front was good. So what is the front? So the top part. I, I bet I can recite this from memory. What's the it's, top part? It's a waterfall in Iceland. Yes. But it's like blown up. It's pixelated. It's so it's like a digital photograph that it, we're seeing uh, like low resolution. We're zoomed in. We're seeing actual pixels. It, they were working with pixel art before that became really popular. It was, it's interesting. Like you just didn't see that on an album cover. Yeah. And then what's the bottom part? Um, a very zoomed in, out of focus. Uh, is it a seashell? It's a seashell. Yeah. Um, in the West Indies. And it's interesting that it's two photographs, and the, the album cover is like sliced in mm-hmm. half, but not not half and half. It's like sli- sliced in thirds. Top third, <laughs> Jess is doing the hand motions to describe. Top third is the waterfall. Bottom two thirds is the red and mainly you're just seeing the color red mm-hmm. um seashell image and then what else is different and then the craziest part what is it we've taken uh, this is the first time i believe the uh well on a it's the first time on a full lp the nin rectangle logo by our friend gary talpas appears on a album cover but it can't just be regular they have to deconstruct. They have to make it decayed somehow. Um, flawed. So what do they do to it? They slice it in half. <laughs> and it's like right where that slice is in the top third. It yes. It cuts off this this itty bitty little Nin logo. Yeah. So on the back, those flowers, do you know where they're from? Texas. Yes. Austin, Texas. Okay. Hi to all our Austinites. Crystal. Hey, Austinites. Is Crystal listening? I think so. Hi, Crystal. <laughs> if your name's Crystal, <laughs> shout out. And you live in Austin. Yeah. I think the flowers are maybe a variety of what's called Indian paintbrush. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I've, that's what I heard. Yeah. Um, and are those? So, I had a question. <clears throat> sorry. Well, I think those are just the wildflowers that you see when you're driving through Texas. Like their medians have like all those like wildflowers on the interstates. You ever noticed that? I was too focused on how mad I was that I'm driving through Texas and how bad the traffic. Yeah, in Texas, it's hell. In the city parts, I should say. Yeah. Are those the flowers of naivety? <laughs> That's kind of, when I, as a teenager listening to this, there's a lyric, uh, I'm looking forward to joining you finally. He says, I, he says the flowers of naivety, right? Buried in a layer of frost. I think so. You're the one, who you're, you're the lyric person. But I was like, oh, the flowers like on the artwork. <laughs> that's the one. That's the one, the flowers he's talking about. We we've, we should go to Austin, uh-huh. go out to a field. Are we going to do this? Pointing. We're going to point at them and do uh-huh. soy face. Okay. I'm down. Next time we visit Crystal, we'll all go do it together. It's Me, you, Crystal, will. We'll do it. Yep. So um, with those pictures, right, the film roll, Carson took them to a one hour photo to be developed. <laughs> This, this is like this just, is strange. What? Okay. I, I mean, I get maybe he. This was a while back, but he. I mean, he's a serious photographer. But it's also probably pretty last minute, right? Like maybe I feel like some of this stuff was done under deadline and under duress and under 
I don't know. This is something I would like to ask him. I would love to have him on as a guest. Like, how much time did you actually have to work on the art? You know, do we think Trent said, or do we think Trent gave him free reign, or do we think Trent said, "I want flowers on this album"? I'm not sure. I mean, I'm. Sh- I, I think Reznor has input on everything. Yeah, of course. And so I'm sure he was like, "I want organic. I want something that's frail." Mm, okay. Yeah. Give me some of those frail ass flowers. <laughs> I want something different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, they developed it wrong. Developed it wrong. Um, They said that they used the wrong chemicals when they were processing and the film was ruined. And David's like, well, I want it anyway. And so he went to go get them. It looked really cool. They just made it cooler. Yeah. That ruined film ended up being what they used. Essentially, it just looks out of focus and blurry. Yeah. It doesn't look like anything. But it would be a weird alternate universe where that was the cover. Um, I could see that happening. I think I'd be okay with that. But I like I like what they ended up with. I like the boldness, the audacity to do this bizarre cover mm-hmm. that's pixelated, that has... A, like, if you're not familiar with NIN, you can be like, what the hell is this that I'm looking at? Yeah. Well, I feel it's the same way. There was another album cover, um, Broken. We had it on our display, and you're like, that is just so loud and so yeah. garish. Like, you do is, not see album covers like that anymore that right. are just it's that just bold. just a big letter in. <laughs> just the colors that are used, right? Yeah. Like, it's just so, yeah. Not a lot of subtlety on that one, but. No, but it works. Great. It works. No, it's a great album cover. So, um, do you want to do some fun stuff? Always. Do you want to talk about charts? Let me turn off the mics first. Oh. <laughs> Do you want to talk about some charts? Charts? Um, charts. I love the charts. You know me. Okay. When The Fragile came out, it debuted at number one in the U.S. It was their first chart topper. The first week, I think it sold uh, 229,000 copies that first week. That's a lot. And I mean, I'm comparing it to today when no one sells any copies. <laughs> Uh, that's a hell of a lot. That's did a hell they never? Did TDS never chart top? Not like that. It didn't. It definitely didn't debut number one. No. So um, that's what five years of hype <laughs> and anticipation will do. It, you'll debut at number one. That's right. So do you want to play a game? I always want to play a game. Okay. It's jigsaw or something. <laughs> I was wondering if you wanted to try to guess the top ten. The week of October 9th, 1999. I don't know how Billboard does this. I know the album came out September 21st, but the mm. week it, chart, it topped the charts Yeah, was it took October them a while 9th. to tabulate. Yes. Like, <laughs> Okay, so we're doing top 10 albums mm-hmm. the, um, the week that The Fragile debuted on Billboard. Debuted at number one on Billboard, yes. So, okay, so two through 10. Yes. So you know number one. Mm-hmm. Okay. And on some of these, I'm going to have to apologize publicly to you. Um, I think I accused you on an earlier episode right. of having your summer of 99 and summer of 2000 Mandela confused. Mandela affected. It was me who had them confused. And I'm going to publicly apologize and say I'm sorry. But at this point, so uh, what? I was just kind of in my room listening to uh, Fiona yeah, Apple yeah. and Elliot Smith all the time. I wasn't doing You were what. tuned out with your sad <laughs> bastard music. I just felt like for some reason Californication came out the summer before I started college. So this, I, I don't know yeah. why. This is what we were up. jamming to mm-hmm. 99 that summer. Californication. Mm-hmm. Um, Smooth by Santana. I think that song was just on the charts forever. And that's why, because I clearly remembered making fun of it with my friend Jason, but we didn't become friends until 
like later in 99. So for some reason, I thought it was spring of 2000. Anyway. And I think I also mentioned Limp Bizkit, Significant Other. Also came out in 99. Now, was that album on this top 10? It was number 11. I wrote down top 20, but it was number 11, so... Uh, that's I was dangerously close on that. You gotta admit. <laughs> okay, one of them you've already said, and it's on here, and it's in the top three. Californication. No. What? <laughs> How is that even possible? It must be the wrong time. Of year. I don't know what time of year Californication came out. Anyway, um, was it the Santana album? Yes, that was number Supernatural. Th- is yes. that what it's called? Number three. I can't believe I remember the title. It was but a big it, album. It sold like a trillion copies. That's yeah. why I remember the title. Okay. Um. Okay. Uh, boy band. Is number two. Okay. Uh, Backstreet. Yes. Millennium. I, I kind of cheated because I didn't remember the title. So, That's okay. okay. You got the band. Number four, Pop Princess. Britney Spears. She's uh, shaking her head. You got to you gotta do it verbally. Britney Spears, though, is number 10. Baby. Or no, no, no. Stop. Um, it was Baby One More Time. Oh, was it? Mm-hmm. So that, oh, that had stayed on the, because that came out earlier. That stayed yeah. on the charts for a long ass time. Well, I think she had other singles off of it. Yeah, right? she did. I mean, who could forget Email bunch, My Heart? That wasn't a single. <laughs> there were a, a bunch of singles. Crazy. Because um, I feel like in 99 or maybe it was 2000, her second album came out. Anyway. Um, okay. What am I forgetting? Ricky Martin, baby. Mm. He's in the news. He, Okay. He's on there, but he's in the top 20. He is number 17. Okay. Well, yeah. close. I was close. Yeah. Uh, what else is on there? Intense. Just. Okay. What a girl wants. Who's saying that? Oh, you did. When I, was, I say you hints, said hints. I know, but this is just handing it to me. Okay. Blonde. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You can't go back. Okay. Christina Aguilera. I don't remember what the album was called. It was self titled for. That was number four. Okay. Okay. Vaguer hint. More <laughs> vague. More vague hints. Okay. Um, female country group. Dixie Chicks. Yes, they were number eight with Fly. Um, female rapper. She had cool tattoos on her breast that were like little, like paws. Um. Oh, oh shit. Was it? Is it Eve? Something? It's Eve. Nice. Number five. Let I almost said Lil' Kim. Uh-huh. <laughs> or Missy. When you said female rapper, I almost said Missy right away. Okay. Um, the next one, number six, is a legendary artist who I've never really gotten into or cared about. Um, Santana. <laughs> that was number three. Oh, wait. We already did that. Uh, legendary performer and actress and someone that moms love. I don't... An actress that moms love. And also, well, known for singing and acting. She did both. Mandy Moore? She has. Mandy, it's not Mandy Moore? Not Mandy Moore. Damn it. She has a mall built underneath her house. Oh, Celine Dion. No. (laughs) Oh, fuck me running. Uh, Barbara Streisand. Yes. Okay, I had well, you got to admit that Celine Dion and Barbara Streisand are the same type of kind, kinda, star, sort of, sort of, barely. One's American, one's French Canadian, whatever. Okay, um, next is an R and B singer at number seven. I think this was his first big hit, but he did a lot of production stuff. It's not Babyface, so don't say Babyface. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know if you're gonna get this, I, but it, it's a song with counting. Oh. 
Um, is it the song that's like one? Oh, is it Brian McKnight? Yeah, good job. Hail to the! I pulled that out of my ass good somehow. Good job. Okay, number nine. I've never owned an album by this artist, and I'm always so proud of myself for this. But there is an evil Jessica, who, uh, who my friend, <laughs> my friend Melissa had a little sister named Jessica, and oh. she was the evil Jessica, and she would play this artist all the time. And I think I've talked to you about it before when we've talked about this artist. Is that you haven't told me anything? He about had a the little artist. person sidekick. Oh fuck. Kid Rock. Yeah, Devil Without a Cause, number nine. Now, just to go through the rest, if you want the top 20, um, 11 is Lint Biscuit, Significant Other. 12 was Tori Amos to Venus and Back. 13, Lou Bega, A Little Bit of Mambo. Oh, boy. <laughs> 14, Juvenile, 400 Degrees. 15, Puff Daddy Forever. 16, Adam Sandler, Stan and Judy's Kid. Jesus. I remember my sister buying that. Um 17, Ricky Martin, self-titled. 18, Chris Cornell, Euphoria Morning. Huh. 19, Shania Twain, Come On Over. And 20, Smash Mouth, Astro Lounge. <laughs> so. Uh, I wonder if All Star had blown up. No, because Shrek wasn't out. So Wasn't that used in Mystery Mist- Men, It too? was debuted with the movie Mystery Men. It was mm-hmm. gonna, supposed to be a vehicle for that. So. A ma- incredible year of music, 99. I maintain that still. <laughs> incredible music year incredible movie year <laughs> yes so it was knocked off the charts the following week it had the biggest plummet at that time in history where it went from or in billboard history sorry just clarify yeah uh where it went from being number one to number 16 blake mm. what album do you think replaced I'm going to be so mad you're going to be very and it was not an album i mentioned so oh. it was a debut oh, like fuck Debut okay. new on the charts. Um, give me a little hint here. Because it could I don't be know, anyone. Just the fucking worst band ever. Uh, not Nickelback. <laughs> yeah, too early for that. Um, butt Rock? I mean, I don't know how else to describe this band. They're a band I've never liked either. Uh, that describes so much. The lead singer was very well known for doing like Jesus Christ type poses and videos and stuff. Oh, God. Okay. Creed. Creed. Human Clay. Ew. Yeah, yeah. Check Knocked out the off. check out the album art for Human Clay. Oh, Great Photoshop so work on that. Horrible. Um, number two though. Graphic design is just my for fun. Number two at that time. Mm-hmm. This is probably the most '90s thing ever, but it was Garth Brooks with Chris Gaines or Chris Gaines. I All guess. Right. Yeah. So he was trying to do do a little Trent Reznor himself there with Chris Gaines. Yeah. <laughs> a little perfect drug action <laughs> with the uh, soul patch. With his little patch. Yeah. So I respect I respect that. I have a clip though of Reznor talking about that infamous drop and how the label reacted to it and how he feels about it. So please I hope he calls uh, Creed out here. <laughs> I don't think he talks about Creed. I'm never going to forgive Creed for that. Even though it really wasn't them who knocked it down. My mom had their first album, My Own Prison. Ew. I remember that clearly. She had it on cassette and would play it. Um I never liked it though. Yeah. I was way cooler than my mom, believe it or not. We were too cool for Creed, okay? <laughs> okay. probably heard it that it debuted at number one because it gave everyone at the label who only understands bells and whistles and explosions going off. And, Whoa, this must be a big... Oh, no, it isn't. You know, it's just that I've got a rabid fan base that bought it immediately. 
And for it to ever permeate beyond that meant that the company that is very willing to take the money out of my pocket needs to understand what they're selling. Can you imagine with the, the conversations in those offices? Yeah, and I overheard a few. You know, it was very disheartening for me in the sense that um, I think if, if the label... I mean, I feel a bit abandoned by Interscope, just to get straight out and say this, that um, I had a very supportive record label that really believed this is an important album, we're standing behind you. Wow, we didn't think it debuted debut at number one. Wow, wow. Wow, it dropped the next week. Wow, see ya. We're on to the next thing. And they're taking a square peg and trying to force it through the same round hole that the M&Ms of the world can fit through and other artists. Suddenly a record that um, everyone loved suddenly is now a failure or, or labeled a failure because of the, the blurred lines between commercial success and critical success. And it sold more than I thought it would to start with. He, he's salty. That was one of the best rants I ever heard. It comes from comes from a place of being angry with the situation, but it yeah. extremely it articulates it extremely well. Mm-hmm. I, he's hard to disagree with anything yeah. there. This is taken, by the way, from that tour of Nothing Studios video. Oh. The, it was an interview there, so it was done. It was like in two thousand two ish, I think. So he had some time to reflect, you know, mm. upon that. Album yeah. and were stuff. him and G- Jimmy Iovine a little bit uh, on the outs there? Maybe, maybe at a that little time? bit. Maybe it was the parent company though of Interscope who really, you know, like it was okay. Ninety nine was a really weird year. There were a lot of mergers. I feel like yeah, um, that were happening in the nineties and early aughts, especially, and uh, that ended with a lot of probably different people, um, maybe controlling things that hadn't been before. Yeah, eventually now there are only three record labels. Um, Universal bought Interscope, of course. Mm -hmm. But yeah, uh, I think he and Jimmy patched things up, obviously, but he's very sore about it right there, you can tell. I think it might have been something that was beyond Jimmy's control, possibly. So Yeah, it was, you know, like the uh, suits in the uh, boardroom. Yeah. The shareholders. So I do want to talk about things that might have led to that drop or to the... I don't want to say poor performance, but the... Yeah, he made a really good point that all the diehard fans bought it week one, day mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. So who who's left to buy it after that except new people? And if you don't have a way to get new people onboarded... And we're going to talk about that. Okay. So the cultural climate was very different mm-hmm. in that five-year period, right? From the downward spiral to the fragile. Yeah. Grunge was dead. Alt-rock was dying. Mm-hmm. Indie rock was starting to kind of rise. Like the kids who were into alt-rock, I feel, were slowly starting to get into things like indie rock or emo, you know, that kind of thing. Things like rap rock. We're going to talk and about that. And the aforementioned kid rock were, yeah. t- were swallowing up every inch of the mainstream space, though. Yes. Let's not pretend that indie... No, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. But I'm just saying there, there it had started to kind of change, right? Because mm-hmm. Alt-Rock had died. And I'll talk about that too. So let's talk about the years between the releases, right? And yeah. Reznor is aware that things have changed. But I think it took him a while to realize that because he was in yeah. this two-year bubble of recording mm-hmm. where I don't think he and really... he comes out. Yeah, he comes and out. And he's like, wait, Napster happened and people are stealing music and what? And what is this Britney Spears? Like, what is going what on? What is an Eminem? And also, he just had this... If you watch some of those uh, 
this is how you can tell he was in a bubble for two years and didn't get around very many humans. But if you watch uh-huh. some of these interviews, he looks very uncomfortable and has a lot of like social yeah. anxiety. And I feel like a lot of that comes from the fact that he was kind of hidden from the world for a couple years while he was working on this album. You know, it's a little refreshing to see. Well, I, I don't envy him, but to see him be like that because it's like that's how I would feel in that situation. That show seems horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I would also feel very, very uncomfortable. I don't think the show seems horrible. I just think he wow. wasn't used to being around the so many people yeah. and, and yeah, that true. kind of thing. It's like coming point. out of COVID isolation. Exactly. So anyway, there were several years between releases and pop culture had shifted a bit. And Reznor told Entertainment Weekly, um, from a career point of view, one risk is that there hasn't been a lot of output from Nine Inch Nails in several years. We're in a climate where bands come and go. I remember when I was growing up, if a band you were interested in put a record out, you would buy the record regardless of whether or not you heard it. I think that in the climate today, with MTV, the one-hit wonder factor seems to be back. There doesn't seem to be a lot of loyalty Uh, Mm fan-wise. I would say the fact that your album is number one meant that your loyal fans went out and bought it. His fans are pretty damn loyal. Yes. Well, there was... Some of the fan base, there was a backlash to the We'll talk about that, too. Right. right. We'll get there. Yeah. So... I would say, though, that the one-hit wonder has never really left us. I mean, right, we're always, always going to have one-hit wonders. I think that mm-hmm. at this point, though, what he might be trying to say is that things have really shifted a lot where it's no longer necessarily album-based, right? It's singles. It's how many copies can you sell. No one cares about the album as a whole, right? It's not looked at that anymore. It's how many – is that a hit single? Can we make money off of it? Let's put it out. How and many not, movies can we put it in? Exactly. There's not a lot of thought given to the album as a whole. It's just the single, right? Yeah. I think that's what he's he's trying to say, maybe. And it, yeah, it feels like it's still that way. And how many billions of streams can we, it and That's because the music format has changed again to mm-hmm. streaming. So, yeah. The album itself also is not a trendy genre of music, which you were talking about, right? So what was trendy at the time? It was like techno. It was boy band. It was pop music. It was rap. It was new metal corn limp yeah, biscuit yeah. and then it was also butt rock like creed and shit but rock know? was just burgeoning <laughs> butt rock was burgeoning <laughs> so um in that same interview he says the fragile doesn't adhere to any genre that is considered in fashion at the moment you That's hear so that true. yeah you hear that rock is dead but who cares boring rock should be dead <laughs> <laughs> yeah The biggest risk is when you challenge a listener to get something out of the music that isn't apparent right away. I thought the downward spiral did that. When I put it out, I thought, well, this is the end of my career. (laughs) At least from a commercial perspective. That's what he was thinking. I just got a plaque for 4 million records sold in America for that album. So the fact that he put out this album that he thought would not be a hit, that ended up selling 4 million copies. He was rewarded for an extremely experimental, Mm -hmm. difficult record. Mm Mm-hmm. And even Mulder says of Reznor, it's typical of him. You know, people saying rock is dead. Everybody else is hanging guitars up and he decides to do a guitar record with (laughs) solos and everything. It's true. They were hanging up the, I mean, the guitars are never truly hung up. I mean, new metal was pretty big, very guitar based, but it's like in a different universe from what the fragile is. Yes. So another thing, Reznor makes... Admittedly, self-admittedly, he makes mm. difficult albums, right? Yeah, and we love him for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course he does. <laughs> he told Spin, It's really easy to make noise that's pretentious and baffle people with obliqueness. 
It would be easy to say, you know, fuck it. I'm making what feels good to me, and I'll just stream it over the internet real time. Find it if you want. But it's less challenging then, because it's really, really hard to make something accessible that's also intelligent. It's even harder now than it was a few years ago. But really, you should rise to that challenge, you know, instead of sitting back and bitching about everything. Things have changed. Attention spans have shortened. The record business, with mergers and everything, is a less artistically free place to make music. But I don't think that an artist's response should be, okay, white flag, forget it. I mean, let's change it back. Hmm. And he even aspires right to this. Mission statement. Good job. (laughs) Yeah, he told the Sunday Times, I aspire to make music that's challenging to me and the public, and I even hope some of it sounds bad the first time you play it. Uh, He's right on the money there. (laughs) That can be the sign of a great record. The records that go on to be my favorites, like Psycho Candy by The Jesus and Mary Chain. Hmm. I thought my stereo was broken the first time I heard it. (laughs) Later, I read Genius into that. Then I met them, and now I'm not so sure it was genius, but the record's still great. So They worked things out uh, <laughs> later on. He also told Rolling Stone Australia that he believes the album is good, but difficult, and probably hard for people to latch on to. Yeah, um, I'd agree. Yeah, and then he said, In today's climate, to know about or give it a chance in the short attention span world that we seem to be in now, especially kids, our record is asking a lot. That makes my mission a little bit more difficult and the tour a little longer, and it means a few more hours to edit that video to get it right. Not that I'm up to the challenge, but I'm seeing more of that than I was aware was going on. Sitting in the studio with the door closed, I wasn't quite as aware of the climate of commerce. (laughs) Basically, he's saying here that he knows the record is difficult, Uh and he's willing to work harder by touring longer or trying harder on his videos to promote the album than he than most people would have to if he just made an easy album. You know, if he just made yeah. a record, a shorter record of pop hits. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I and I think his work ethic is endless, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's just a good philosophy. I think. Yeah, but I also think that another issue is that maybe there's not a lot of catchy tunes on this album i feel like except for into the void into the void is very (laughs) catchy i feel like with repeated listening obviously it grows on you but there's not a lot that screams radio there's not a lot that screams mtv and then i was thinking about it but i was like is march of the pigs catchy like march of the pigs is like the most nasty thing you've ever heard in your life but it's also one of the best songs they ever did but is it catchy? No, <laughs> except <laughs> except for well, he put something catchy in it. Doesn't it make you feel better? Mm-hmm. And then nastiness comes barreling back in, and it makes it stand out, right? Yeah. But the problem is now that, as he puts it, this climate of commerce has taken hold of the music scene. He doesn't really have anything super catchy that he can put out there as a single. You know what I mean? Like, there's Into right. the Void. There's I guess We're In This Together is kind of catchy, but well, not really. We're In This Together almost imitates a epic rock ballad, mm-hmm. but it's more than seven minutes long. Like, oh, yeah. who the fuck's going to play it? <laughs> so, uh, when Alternative Press asked him about radio play, Reznor said, I really don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Just like Sorry, it's funny. Old, old man mode. <laughs> no. I just woke up 
He has a long beard. I just woke up from a hundred year nap. What's even happening? <laughs> so he said, I can guess what people might still think I'm like or how interested they are still, but there's been a sizable amount of time. Rock has evaporated its presence a bit in the meantime. An alternative doesn't exist anymore because major labels convinced everybody that fucking bare naked ladies are alternative. <laughs> that REM are still somehow alternative. And it's all confusion and bullshit and hip hop took over. I could go mad thinking about it. I think I've made a good, complex album that is rewarding and very challenging at the same time. And that's all I can hope for. And I'm not saying that like, oh, I like it. I really, I, I, I think I do. I fucking think it's the best thing I've done. And it isn't for lack of trying on the fucker. So he told Entertainment Weekly, it doesn't look to me like a singles oriented hit pop top of the charts type album. I assume we aren't going to have a super heavy MTV rotation. And then he added, this is kind of interesting on his part. He said, if I fail, I fail with a good conscience. Of course, I'll probably be singing a different tune if my record falls off the charts in the second week. Oh, that's not what you want to say. Oh, don't say that. You jinxed yourself. Oh, no. So not only is it a difficult album, Mm -hmm. it's long. It's a double album. It is longer than I even thought. Yeah. So he's asking people to listen to something that maybe he purposely made sound bad and not catchy and to listen to two CDs of this difficult (laughs) album. (laughs) So anyway, in Guitar World, he said, there's a lot of things in there that I think are going back to my 70s record roots. A lot of the song structures and the fact that I wanted it to be an actual album, you know, I used to like listening to a piece of work that was 10 or 20 songs long instead of, oh, we got two good songs, just skip around on your CD player. Mm-hmm. God forbid you hit the random button. It's not meant to be that way, you know? The random button is my enemy. <laughs> <laughs> I agree that it's unfashionable for today's climate, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's all the more reason to do it. I feel like the random button is like the the way we listen to music now. Uh, I don't. I hate well, when I, I shuffle I shuffle playlists and well, algorithms. Playlists are different. Yeah. Whenever you listen to an album, do you True. shuffle that? Okay, good good point. I don't unless I want to try to get experimental, but that almost never happens. Like the fragile, I'm obviously Actually, I did shuffle the fragile because I've listened to it a trillion times the right way. I was like, what would happen if it were randomized? How did it sound? I mean, the transitions don't sound good, (laughs) but it is interesting to hear it in a different order. Yeah. Just as I was driving. What's really shitty is you don't have Spotify, but Spotify on the the mobile interface, the little green play button, Mm -hmm. it used to be whenever you would hit it. Whenever I first got Spotify, I had Tidal before and it wasn't like this, but Spotify... uh, this green button that you just think, oh, I'll hit it, and it will just play from track one. That's not how it worked. It would shuffle. It was automatically set to oh, shuffle God. a fucking album. That is And so it wasn't shitty. until Adele released her most recent album and bitched about it that they took that feature off. Wow. So now when you hit that green button that you think will just play from track one, it actually works. But Adele was like, look, <laughs> artists put a lot of like thought and consideration right. in their album Hello. and in sequencing. And in making sure the flow is right, and you just put that shuffle as the default play mode. Bob Ezrin is crying. <laughs> so it wasn't until Adele released her most recent album that Spotify changed that. So just a little fun fact there. 
The power of Adele, folks. Yeah. So when the LA Times asked about his label's reaction to him making a double album, Reznor said, I'm sure Interscope wasn't thrilled that it was a double CD, and I'm not a fan of double CDs. I didn't want to be <laughs> one of those artists who was deluded into thinking fans want to hear every sound that you put on tape in the last two years, whether it's good or not. But the problem was that when you started taking pieces away from the album to make it one disc, it didn't feel as complete. So... Yeah, as they tried to do at first, as we discussed. I'm going to play another clip from Box Talk. <laughs> talking about that box. And here is Reznor talking about when they realized it was going to be like a, a double CD and why they kept it that way. At the halfway point, we put on the editorial hat and then tried to figure out, okay, now what is this? Let's form this into some sort of um, tangible and accessible shape. And it was at that point when I realized we might be getting into the double CD world because if you trimmed out all the things that were a bit esoteric or a bit flighty or a bit weird, those were the things that inspired us in the first place. Just a short little clip there, but to, to carry on in defense of like the, the double album. I love that Jess wrote in the outline, it's a double album in this economy? <laughs> Do you know how much double albums cost? I know, I know. I bet it was it's, probably $30. When, when, and in the vinyl world, my God. So um, in defense of the double album, to kind of continue that, um, he said, it's just that a lot of the songs sound better when they're supported by other songs, if that makes sense. When we tried cutting it down, it just kind of scattered. It didn't seem to make sense. You need to be in for the long couple hour sit down to get this. And so Alternative Press was like, so uh, do you think this should be heard as a whole and not, tr you know? <laughs> no, dumbass. That's, that's what I've been saying this whole interview. <laughs> well, Reznor goes, um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> what did you take from this? <laughs> he said, it's a substantial time commitment. What I've always been about is trying to make an album as a full experience more than here's a good song. Here's some shit we just randomly threw together. I'm really into the sit-down experience of the whole thing. The idea of a record that's a record or the side of an album that's great has always been something I've enjoyed as a fan. And that's what I aspire to do now, although I don't know how popular will be in the near future. And you know what? I don't care. <laughs> yeah. It's also possible that this album maybe alienated mm. maybe alienated some fans. A certain type of fan. I've talked about them before. Mm -hmm. The hardcore broken fan, the average broken enjoyer. Hey, uh, excuse me. I love broken. We, it's it's okay. probably in my top five halos. So you need to like, all right, calm down. Chill on the, the we broken. Both, hate. I'm just saying, when they start doing things that aren't metal enough, I feel like there was a certain type of dude, and I remember this type of dude from echoing the sound in the year 2000 being like, I just had to drop off when the fragile came out. It just didn't rock, man. <laughs> like, I, it does, there is a lot of harsh and awesome stuff. Um, maybe I'm getting it wrong, and it's not about how metal it is. I may be misremembering, but for some reason, a group of fans dropped off at the fragile it's something different uh, very different sounds some of it sounds more more fragile for lack of a better mm. term so it's just an album i think that showed a lot of growth right um yeah they're really branching out at and, this point. and it was very experimental in mm -hmm. certain ways 
And so I could see maybe how it might alienate people who just kind of want to bang their head. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, because you can bang your head to some of the tracks, but not the majority. So here's what he told Alternative Press when they asked him about alienating his fans. He said, I don't really know. I can say this, though. I've thought that I would alienate fans every time I put a record out. But I'm Mm. a different person than I was a year ago, let alone five years ago. Is it going to piss some people off? Am I going to lose some fans? Probably. At one point, I thought this record was so different from everything I've done that maybe I fucked myself up by trying. Then there's other times I listen to it where I think, it sounds like Nine Inch Nails. Is that good or bad? (laughs) I've approached this in my head the right way because it's true to what I am right now, and that's the only criteria I've had in the past, and it works. Yeah. So. Well said. True. I think... I'm trying to remember, like, my reaction to this album. I think I liked it a lot. I don't think I fell in love with it immediately. Like, I don't think it was something like that. Um, I don't think I heard it and was like, this is my favorite album of all time. Like, the first time I heard it, you know? it. Yeah. Did it take you a while to come around? Did you hear it as a full album? Yes, because I bought the album. Yeah. See, yeah. I envy... I didn't get to have that experience. I had to hear it piecemeal and then, like... Over file sharing, which Ooh, we'll get to. we're going to talk to yeah. you about right now. And yeah. then I bought the CD, and by the time I bought the CD, I already loved it, and it's I it's still my favorite. See, here's the thing about file sharing, and also about streaming. That I know there's an argument. Obviously, it has impacted physical album sales, especially streaming. Yeah, I feel like file sharing was very niche at the beginning, especially in '99. Like. Not everyone could do it. Right. I've never been into file sharing because whenever Napster was a thing, it's really seedy. I, I barely had internet. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, a like, lot of people didn't have internet barely. in the early days. And of then Napster. when I was in college, I don't think you could connect to Napster. I don't think that kind of stuff was allowed. Yeah, they had a good firewall against that. Yep. And then um, I just have never had, like, I remember the few times I downloaded, like, I, I would try to get stuff on Napster. It would take forever. To yeah, get a couple it, of songs. Oh, yeah, days. Yes. And then you would hear it, and it might be mislabeled. And I just didn't have the fucking patience. You know I, what I mean? I like, had a lot of songs that would get like two and a half minutes in and then cut off because I didn't download the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I've, just, I've just never been into it because I just, I don't know. I just never, never had the patience. I don't like sitting in front of the computer uh, and in the did. early days of file sharing, like Believe you would me. have to go and like check on it. I'm Young sure there. Te- teenage Blake loved to sit in front of the computer. Yeah, there was just I've just never been big into it, so I don't. I know that it did obviously eat away, especially as people got you know as more people got internet and as the way that music is consumed changed. It definitely ate into physical album sales, but also I feel like artists don't make a lot of money from album sales anyway. They don't. Most of their out, al- most of the money that artists makes comes from touring and promotion, merch. like merch. Yeah, and that's why you see people like Ariana Grande, who has a makeup brand. Who gives a shit about yeah. Ariana Grande's makeup? They have to diversify exactly. with all these different products. Billie Eilish has perfume. I don't Billie give a Eilish shit. Billie Eilish has every goddamn thing. <laughs> I love her, but like she has everything. She also, sells everything. But also with record contracts, a lot of the times, like if you're okay, let's say you get so much money right for your album you have to pay back your record label for videos that you make and for touring costs and for recording costs like that's not something that is is included in your deal like you have to pay that back in the typical arrangement you're given an advance Mm -hmm. and that advance is meant to be paid back it's not free money 
Yes. And so to me, like the file sharing thing, maybe you didn't sell as much physically, which I guess would eventually hurt radio play and MTV play. You would kind of slip away, I guess. Um, slip away? <laughs> but I I don't really necessarily buy, especially in 1999, that it was responsible no. for record sale decline. Back then, yeah. I remember, because I was a big Napster and file sharing person, and there was a debate raging Will it destroy the music industry? And I came down on the side. I I was like, it's not going to hurt the music industry. They're not going to be destroyed by it. What hurt the music industry is that they did not keep up with the technology in the way that yeah, they Yeah, they were. Well, yeah, octogenarians were in the boardroom of every and? Um, record company. Mm-hmm. They were greedy as fuck. Charging eighteen yeah. ninety nine per oh, CD, yeah, $30 per CD for something that costs like $2 to make. Is insane the markup on CDs. When I worked at Barnes and Noble in the music department, yeah, CDs would cost like I think it's the stupid. bare minimum was like eighteen ninety nine. Yeah, yeah, that was the cheap one. Yeah. Now they've got it figured out. Forty dollars for a vinyl disc. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to go. I have always just viewed like streaming and and file sharing as promotional tools like radio that will get you out there and get you heard. Yeah. But unfortunately. For artists who do not have the backing of a major label, it does hurt you. As I was a teenager, obviously very profile sharing because I was doing it as my way to get music before I had a car and could go to the CD store. Or had money. Or yeah, had a job. Didn't have money. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to hear snippets of everything. And I thought, this is never going to destroy the music industry as some of the alarmist people were were saying. Um but the music industry was forever changed and also never the same. But that has to do with technology changing as a whole. Just it, the way we consume it mm-hmm. was in the process of changing radically. And it, 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 we, there was a lot of the old guard trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Mm-hmm. They were like, we got to stop this foul sharing. You can't. No. You won't stop the march of pro- Trent Reznor was against file sharing. We'll talk about that in a second. I have a clip. And he was mad about people torrenting his albums. And he he realized, he came around and he realized, wait, you can't put the toothpaste back. Yeah. Um, let's just roll with this. Let's work with the new technology instead of trying to work, work against, against it. it. I'm grateful though that he never did anything like, I don't know, sue his fans <laughs> yeah, he over it. Yeah, he didn't do a Lars Ulrich like Suing 14-year-olds total... in Ohio who Jeez. have no money lo- who are just downloading a Metallica song randomly. I got kicked off Napster by the way because I had Master of Puppets on there. <laughs> I had a few, I just had a few singles, like one yeah. um, before Stranger Things. Uh, yeah, I was kicked off Napster and then I was like, fuck this, I'll just go to LimeWire and Kazaa. Yeah, guess what? Because other things will crop up mm-hmm. in its place because you can't. And that's why you can't ever stop it. It's a hydra. You cut off one head, etc. So now that we're talking about it, here is Trent Reznor talking about his thoughts on file sharing and on Napster. And also, as a bonus, he calls Fred Durst a moron. And <laughs> of course. I just want to say that I love hater Trent so much, and <laughs> I want to have a whole episode of just hater Trentism. Hate, that'll be the Starfuckers music video episode. That's <laughs> hater Trent mode. Uh, we'll have a whole bonus of just hater Trent. He has said so many bad things about Bush that I agree with now that, you know, 
I probably agreed with it. About Bush when the I band like, or Bush the president? The band and the president. <laughs> he <later>. hated both. <laughs> Anything. He probably hates the Bush beer, too. It sucks. <laughs> Go ahead. I hate Bush beer because it was the beer my dad drank. So um, not. Too serious. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. I understand. He even had one of those like mirrored. Like those oh, beer God. mirrors, you oh, know what I mean? We had beer mirrors in my party house. I remember that, but it had the mountains of bush on it. And oh, he was Jesus. very fucking proud of we that beer drink, mirror. We occasionally would drink bush at the party house. Back when I had uh, worse taste in <laughs> beer. I'm not going to say it got good. Okay, so before this starts, I want to apologize for the sound quality. I, it's probably really shitty, but it's Trent Reznor talking on MTV2 about... Napster. So let's jump off completely. I want to talk about the, the subject of, of Napster really quick because a lot of artists have uh, uh, jumped on their side of the fence and, you know, some people think it's great, some people are against it. A lot of the new artists seem to like it. Uh, what's your feelings about having your music available for your fans on Napster? Um, I think I'm all for technology and it's interesting with the exchange of music, but the way that it's set up right now, it's theft, basically, pure and simple. And I mean, it's tough to take that stance as a musician and not sound like uh, a rich guy trying to get richer. But the bottom line is, it's, um, it's people stealing what you spend a lot of time and effort and money to create. And I can't support that. You know? What do you say to the artists that are so, you know, just so loving it? The the new guy, the like the Fred Durst of the world, who just they think it's the greatest thing for music. Uh, well, he's a moron. <laughs> okay, all right. What more needs to be said about that? Nothing else, I guess. <laughs> there you he, go. Yeah, he's he's even though he was on the wrong side of technology, he did still make good points. Theft, I would say, as far as theft, it's a gray area. But there's like if supporting artists is just the the right thing to do. I like, still, I mean, I use streaming a lot. Um, but if it's an artist I love, yeah, but streaming is. I will. It's legal, obviously. Yeah. I know that, and they make a time. Well, here's the reason why I feel. Legal. Yeah. Well, here's the reason I feel bad is they make absolutely nothing off of streaming, yeah. unless you're like a Taylor Swift type who has billions of streams. You know. Yeah. Um. But if I love an artist, I'm going to buy their album, even without hearing it, which he was talking about. You know, I, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll buy, pre-order um, stuff. Like, I, if I, if I want to support them, I'll buy merch. I'll buy mm-hmm. vinyl. Um, I'll try to see them on tour, but we live in like a hellhole yeah. where no one ever comes. But, but I yeah. mean, I, I'm all about supporting artists, obviously. Yeah. Just hoarding, hoarding all these files and, uh, you know, filling hard drives with them and being like, I'll never pay for music. I think that's a shitty way to be. I don't think most people were like that, though. No, I think that's that, a small, a, a small. I think most users yep. were young and just didn't yep, have money, yep. you know? Just like me, just yeah. like we're in my boat. So finally, the last thing I want to touch on just briefly is promotion, just in general. Um, Reznor, after the album dropped off the charts, he kind of was like, the record label lost interest, which he said, you know, um, and he felt like they weren't promoting him like they should be. However, I just want to talk briefly about some of the promotion that was a little bit different for this record. And one of them is the fact that there was a teaser for this album a year before it came <laughs> out. Are we talking about the 99? So No, this was in 98. In September oh. 10th, 
1998, during the 1998 MTV VMAs, there was a 30-second teaser that aired during the VMAs that was directed by Robert Hills, who we've talked about. And it was a last-minute decision by Reznor to make and broadcast this teaser. So I want to play this teaser. And I don't think it aired for everyone. I think it was only in certain markets. I'm sure our market did not get it. Probably not. So I'm just going to play it. And you can look it up. Maybe we'll put links in. Blake is going to come watch it. Blake, can you describe the ad that you just watched? Yeah, and I'm very familiar with this ad because we did an homage to it for Nailed to tease Mm -hmm. the Fragile uh, miniseries. Mm -hmm. Now, it does say on this clip, 1999 TV spot, but that is incorrect, which they say in this article. They say, we promise you it's 1998. So, Okay, I got to thank Super Saw Heather, Mm -hmm. our friend. Um, because she edited that video for us. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Heather. Um, after this video, I think why earlier I said 99 and it's often called 99 because text appears on the screen that says 99. And that's just because it's a vague right. promotional teaser They're that's saying, like sometime in 99, you're going to get this album. And, you know, it's the cute little nine, the word, or you know, nines and N-I-N is the mm-hmm. first three letters of that. Anyway. Um, it's just, it's like a text-based um, video manipulation. <laughs> yeah. Where very the, simple, very the sparse. NIN logo is mm-hmm. being glitched up. It, it it would be a Rob Sheridan joint if he weren't an infant when that <laughs> premiered. <laughs> um, but yeah, very, he he's very in that vein. And then what you're hearing is what I'll call an early build of Into the Void. Mm-hmm. Like it was so that teaser came so early that he redid the vocals on Into the Void. How do you feel about those vocals, though? I thought it was interesting. I kind of want to. It's they're cool. I think I probably prefer the version that ended up on the album. Um, yeah, it's like he's more laid back and not putting as much energy into the vocals. Kind of low energy Resner. Tried to save myself, but myself keeps it. Like kind of like yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Low energy risk. <laughs> so uh, next, there was a full-length ad to promote the album that was in 1999, and this one David Carson directed. Well, so I'm going to play this one. I don't know if I've seen this. I'm coming around to look. Okay. What do you think of that? That one's really fucking cool. I had seen that a long time ago. It's like a moving collage of the Carson art, Mm -hmm. uh, different pieces of art he did for the album. And then it's a collage of sounds too. 
And then it just cuts to an image of Reznor singing. Right. We right. hear we hear the way out is through, mm-hmm. but then it cuts away to just his vocal performance, and we like see his mouth up close and his mm-hmm. neck, and his neck as he's screeching it. Man, he's yeah. really delivering. Yeah, right I there. think that was only aired in certain markets too. But it sent me on this spiral because I was like, a spiral, you say? <laughs> I was like, what albums have? commercials because here's the thing is i remember obviously like time life commercials right like the sounds of the 50s pure moods pure moods um monster ballads like all those Mm. like compilations and also like weird hit singles collections of like three dog night like there's only one reason i know joy to the world and it's because that fucking commercial was played all the time i really wish they had done a direct marketing commercial for the fragile that was had the blue screen at the end that said, <laughs> "Call, have your credit card ready." <laughs> it was like super cheesy, and had the scrolling text. Yeah, that's like somewhat damaged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was trying to think though of albums that possibly had commercials, and I vaguely remember. This is going to sound dumb, but I feel like. Do you remember a band called Tonic? No. You don't remember the song "If You Could Only See." I don't know. It was okay. Yeah, I'd have to hear it. I'm not going to play it for you, okay. but I'm not going to sing it either because okay. no one wants to hear that. But um, they they were just like a – they had one album that was kind of a hit, and it was mainly because of that song, If You Could Only See. And I feel like there was an ad for that album as well. But mm-hmm. this been, sent me on like a deep dive, and I was like, what other albums have had ads? And my favorite one, though, is the one for – well, there was one for Nirvana's In Utero. <laughs> It is wacky. It is insane. They're giving birth to the album. I think I don't. I don't know how I mean, to describe this. It's a like, good, good little metaphor for well, de- just, delivering an album. I've never seen this before. Had you? When, no, before because I showed it to you. The other I night? wasn't watching MTV at the time, which is the only place they would have yeah. played this. And I don't even know if they came to our market anyway. But you know, if I saw it on MTV, I would have thought it was an MTV skit or something. Like I wouldn't have thought it was a commercial for an <laughs> MTV album. Skit. But you know yeah. what I mean? Like, cause they would have like really funny, like promotional oh. bits oh, before like little bumpers. Yeah, yeah. Like little, yeah. yeah. Um, like Jimmy, the cab driver. Does anyone remember him? No, but I know what you mean. I know the type of thing. Interstitial MTV. Yeah. Yeah. Like they had one that was really cool that David LaChapelle directed. That was, um, Courtney Love and Madonna, but they they were, recreating it wasn't really them it was actors portraying them at an older age but they were recreating a very famous scene from whatever happened to baby jane oh when i think madonna is playing the um role that joan crawford played and Mm -hmm. courtney love is the betty davis role sure and she presents her with the food and whips off the cover and there's the rat and she's laughing hysterically while madonna (laughs) screams and madonna's wearing like her cone her famous like gautier like cone you know, and like Courtney's in her kinder whore look. Courtney, it's great. Courtney Love is not unlike Betty Davis. <laughs> so I think that works. Yeah. It, it worked. It was. It's actually genius. And if you've never seen it, watch it. It's funny. Um, but yeah, there was there was one for in utero. Look these up. These are great. I'm not going to play them now because we're about at the two and a half hour mark. She played me a David Bowie one as well. There was one wild. for Lodger. <laughs> they it's really great. needed to sell Lodger. Yeah, there was Lodger is. Is, by the way, it's a, good a great album. album. There was one for Michael Jackson's Thriller, and it is so eighties; it hurts. It's just, it's just like some graphics on a screen. Yeah, and not much is happening. Like you yeah. could at least show them dancing. Yeah, there was one for Madonna's, um, and this is a greatest hits album. It was the Immaculate yeah, Collection. Yeah, got it. So well, that that probably sold 
80 billion copies. I had a copy. I did too. Yeah. I also had something to remember, which collected her ballads. I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were quite a few. Um, I just was not aware of them, and I fell down a little hole. But it Will might you be. You play just the audio of the David Bowie one, real quick. Yeah, let me find it. Just so we give people a little something. David Bowie explores a new quality of life as the lodger on RCA Records. <laughs> uh, a new quality of life for Bowie. Interesting way on to R- put it. On RCA Records, yeah. So anyway, go look those up. They're a lot of fun. Um, I, I wish they still. They, they probably still do, do, Blake. We just don't but have normal just, TV. They're on TikTok and YouTube and shit. They're like little teasers. Yeah, and also like artists themselves sell products. Like I was watching. We have. Um, paramount so we can watch beavis and butthead but it mm-hmm. still interrupts with commercials which pisses me off <laughs> um but there That's was an paramount ad for point. a while they showed that was megan the stallion oh fuck wasn't she selling like cryptocurrency oh, it was so yeah. disappointing i know she and I, but like we said hus- you she hustles you have to hustle right. as an artist i don't yeah. like I do you think that megan's into crypto no she just won yeah she's she's just hustling i get it but fuck yeah. crypto also anyway so, finally, I'm just going to go over these briefly. I think we might do a bonus episode on this because there is one review in particular that I want to talk about and spend some time talking about. But I just want to go over reviews quickly for The Fragile. I'm just going to skim through these, right? She's going to read Pitchfork Review top to bottom, the first one. <laughs> Rolling Stone, four stars. Nice. Out of five. Spin, nine out of ten. Not bad. USA Today, four out of four. Edna I, loved Nine I Inch love Nails. That USA Today chimes in. Okay. <laughs> Entertainment Weekly, A minus. <laughs> nice. Pretty <laughs> the, good. Yeah. The Guardian, four out of five stars. Okay. Chris Gow, our favorite, a B. And also, he <laughs> wrote like some insane nonsense that makes no sense. It's probably we'll like a haiku. It. That guy or, is bonkers. Or, I don't know is. how he was but a he, critic. But he can be a tough critic, so not bad from him, I guess. Yeah. NME. Mm. Oh, didn't they not like Trent? They hate Trent. Yeah, yeah. They gave it a 5 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> Come yeah. on. Come and on, then there's fellas. the infamous Pitchfork, the first time review, before they realized that cool kids like this album. They gave it a 2 out of 10. I bet that writer was 17 years old <laughs> the pitchfork writer they were like a startup at this point right? in 1999 they started before that i think they were like 95 or oh, four geez. did been... they begin as an internet entity well sure yeah, yeah that's yeah, all yeah. they've ever been they've all only been but that. no one no one even knew who pitchfork was even in 99 some people did i'm sure yeah uh, music nerds, we but... just had not entered the golden age of pitchfork right, yet that was right. the the thing but people come back to that review they also gave like get up kids like a horrible review for some listen something to write home about is a get pop up, emo classic get up kids seems like something they should like but it's hard to predict pitchfork yeah it really is and then they go back and listen i understand like historical uh revisiting things and 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 uh this was so stupid but their review is just it's not even a real music review. It's just someone who is an asshole making fun of it the whole time. Yeah, Does that make sense? Like, it's yeah. not someone who just actually... Dunking, dunking is not... A review. It's stupid. Yeah. Like, just... Yeah. It's it's because there wasn't Twitter. If there was Twitter at the time, someone just could have tweeted something snarky about it. <laughs> but no, we had to write reviews. 
But they fixed it later. They fixed it later because whenever they released the definitive edition, they went back and uh, reviewed it and, and gave course, it a better review. Pitchfork has to revise history every every time. Well, I, I listen. Like I said, I don't have a problem with people going back and revising things, looking back upon things and realizing, oh, this was maybe more important than we thought at the time. I think, for instance, like Rob Sheffield from Rolling Stone panned the bins by Radiohead, completely panned it, called it like a desperate attempt at a one-hit wonder trying to have some kind of... Um, Stupid. And the other one, the bins a is a great album. album. What a, <laughs> like, what what a great album. What was wrong with right. him? But uh, panned it and totally regrets it, obviously. But the bins was Shame also a good bridge. album. Like, yeah. it's not even a hard album to get into. No, it's accessible for Very Radiohead, especially. accessible. Anyway, so... The, I have no problem with revisiting things and and and... When maybe adjusting, especially if it's uh, yeah, but their whole their campaign to uh that they did the re re ratings that a that while was back. during their anniversary. They were celebrating like twenty or twenty five years or whatever. That whole thing was strange. Somebody tweeted about that. They were like, the the pitchfork re rating is like the equivalent of when someone on a game show doesn't know their answer and they're looking around at the audience. <laughs> <laughs> To see what the audience right. thinks. What should I put here? Well, what one I of say? The, some of them are so dumb. Like I think they give they revisited Chairlift's um moth, oh. which we love. Yeah. And I think they only adjusted it by a couple points. It's like who gives Why a shit? Even do, wait, did they not like it at first? Or no, it was a I mean it was like probably I think they adjusted from like a six point eight to a seven point three. I can't even Jesus tell you. It was Christ. like the dumbest thing. The only That's thing still they too low. The only yeah, that album rules. The only thing they revisited in that time. That they changed that I thought was interesting was they the person who gave Liz Fair's self titled album a zero fuck off changed it. You don't give anything a zero if you turn in an album. That's just someone who was pissed that Liz Fair was not making lo fi shit recorded in her. Was it a man? Was it a man? Oh, I think it was. Yeah, it was just someone who was pissed that she wasn't trying to be the indie darling forever. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. But like the album is fine. Yeah, okay, I'm some... sorry. I'm sorry the Matrix produced it. Um, but she has said herself, I need money. Like, I <laughs> yeah. can't be an indie darling forever. I have a child. I have I a have kid, with. exactly. Like, that album has hot white on it, okay? like I hate that song, I will say. Why? <laughs> it's good enough for Liz Fair. You don't think I it's like fun? Li- I like Little Digger. That little song, Digger's good. Little Digger's is Extraordinary's good for like a... Pop single. You know what's good for Very a pop good. single? Why can't I? It's fine. I like Extraordinary better. Extraordinary, I think, is better. But Why Can't I is just fine for a little pop single used in rom-com montages. Sure. Whatever. Thir- 13 going on 30. Exactly. Um, we've gone too long on that tangent. So what, el- what else we got? That's all I wanted to talk about for oh, right okay, now. Okay, we're done. We're done. We well, I mean, introduced... we're not done. <laughs> no, we're not done. We're done with the fragile bye. See you next time for With Teeth. <laughs> We'll come back and we'll revisit these themes and we'll dig in even deeper. We'll go further down the fragile. We'll get even fragiler. We'll get somewhat damaged together. Join us, won't you? So we're going to say hello and shout out some new patrons as as we like to do, right? Yes. So I want to say shout out and thank you to Tim. Uh, great uh, replacements album. Very good. To Babe with the Power. Great uh, Labyrinth reference. <laughs> dance, magic, dance. Um, Renee. 
Shout out. Hey, Renee. Hey, babe. Renee, Renee. I don't have a good song or reference for that. I'm sure there's one. I just can't think of any right now. The next person is Lola, and we have a great song for that. Mm-hmm. But we respect all of you equally, and mm-hmm. thank you so much. And you can go to patreon.com slash nailedpod. We have at least 27 fucking bonus episodes where we go beyond the halos. We call it Nailed Even Deeper. Ha ha ha. <laughs> uh, uh, this whole thing is a pun about fucking. Um, <laughs> it's like Trent says, this is a song about fucking. This is a podcast about fucking. Okay. Not real. I'm sorry. I've had I had a drink. I'm so sorry. Big news though in the nailed world, we released the nailed merch summer collection. Are Get you- yourself a tie-dye bucket hat. We have we have a black bucket hat. We have bucket hats galore. It's it looks like the Olivia Rodrigo official merch store up in there. <laughs> a black one, a white one with the they are all with the nailed logo and a tie-dye purple and blue one Uh um but if you're not into bucket hats uh, neither jess nor i really wear bucket hats but um many of our listeners are are into that sort of shout out to rooker who who rocks it a bucket hat we got the new wave trent uh in in a cool the phm colors we got more colorful stuff we got an all over print uh perfect drug style uh colorful shirt um Uh Tyler Snell, our, our artist, designed most of this stuff, and he designed the uh, the all-over print shirt, and he himself called it garish, and it is, but some people are still rocking it. Shout uh, out to Jimmy. Shout out to Jim. Um, there is the, um, the Trent with his tambourine t-shirt that says, you know I keep that thang on me. Thanks to Heather for helping with the early designs of that. Right, right, right. It was, you know, this is all a group effort here, so thank you. We got more colors of baseball hats, and of course, as demonstrated on, on this very podcast in, uh, in earlier episodes, we have the Trent Reznor Pro Audio Analog Screaming Pillow. <laughs> you can order the pillow, you can scream through it, and sound just like Trent in the song Last. Um, you know, I want you to make me, etc., Mm-hmm. So get on there, nailedpod.com, and that has a link to all of our stuff, including the merch store and the Patreon, and much more. And that Fragile Summer playlist that Jessica spent uh, a long time working on, and our listeners helped uh, make that playlist. That's right. With helped some contribute of our, some tracks. Yeah, and- our favorite favorite summer tracks that also have a fragileness to them and it, of course it includes all the tracks from the fragile so we'll see you at red rocks i guess we it's getting closer and closer <laughs> that's the way time works i know <laughs> yeah we have several countdowns i think we're like at 18 days now yeah as we record this and every fucking buddy will be there it seems i know not everyone if anyone from the Nine Inch Nails camp listens to this podcast, make a suggestion to Reznor. We need to hear where is everybody. First we do. Thing. We do. And if if that is played first thing, then we'll know that someone is listening. Here's what. Here, <laughs> yeah. And here's an ama- that confirms someone's listening. If it's played at any point, I'm gonna say it. Confirms I kind of have. I have listening. a feeling 
Like, what if night one is a more traditional set and night two, they go wild and they play the fragile top to bottom? Well, that leads me to what our next bonus episode is. So our next bonus episode is going to be me and Blake making our dream set lists and sharing mm-hmm. our patrons dream set lists who have contributed. They've if already you're, come up with some awesome ones. If you're not on Discord and you're just now hearing about this, feel free to email us. And if your set list is, that's what I get... 10 times in a row don't bother sending it in no do it rooker you're fine (laughs) this is a rooker heavy episode i wasn't gonna say him and you brought it up okay this is gonna be a really fun bonus uh dream set lists Mm -hmm. and so blake what's our next episode about after the the following week you mean after dream set lists Mm mm-hmm well, we're diving right into La Mer, aren't we? And by that, I mean diving into the actual album and the first few tracks. We're diving into the actual album. So what tracks are we going to be covering? Well, the first side of vinyl, mm-hmm. somewhat damaged. The day the world went away, we'll talk a little little bit more about. The frail. The wretched. That's, that's a, as they say in, uh, I think you should leave. That's a crop right there. That's a good crop of songs. <laughs> Very good crop of songs. Can't wait to talk about them. So. Wow. Powerful songs. Thank you for sticking with us through this very long episode. Not that long. Well, okay, it's long. And I hope that you stay with us as we journey through the fragile. And into the void. <laughs> and the way out is through. Got more in there? Got more you want to get no, out? No, I don't. Okay. We're in this together. And as always, thanks so much for listening. And didn't that make you feel better? Mm-hmm.